Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the astrological forecast for February of 2022. Joining me today are astrologers Austin Kopic and special guest co-host Patrick Watson. Welcome, guys. Hey. Hi. Thanks for having me. All right. I'm gonna we're gonna do I'm gonna do a little bit of an overview of the forecast for February. And just to give you a quick snapshot for those watching the beginning of the video, and then we'll get into a deep dive of the astrology of the next four weeks right after that. So first, here's our planetary alignments calendar, which shows the astrology overview of February. Right at the top of the month, we have a new moon in the sign of Aquarius on the 1st of February. Then two days later, Mercury stations direct, ending its three-week retrograde period through the signs of Aquarius and Capricorn. Then about a week or so later, Mercury moving forward again ingresses into the sign of Aquarius on the 14th. Then we have a Leo full moon on the 16th. The same day Venus conjoins Mars in Capricorn. The next day on the 17th, Jupiter sextiles Uranus. Then the Sun goes into Pisces on the 18th. And then there's a few other things that we'll talk about later in the episode, but that's the major stuff for this month. Uh, here's the planetary movements calendar that shows where in the zodiac the planets will start at the beginning of the month and how far through the signs they'll get by the end of the month. All right, welcome, welcome, Patrick. Uh, this is a fun trio because we we actually go way back. All of us first met at Project Hindsight, I think, at one of the first conclaves in like 2006 or something, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I met well. I met Chris in person in 2006. I didn't know that Austin was Baron. Um, <laughs> um, uh, sorry if I gave that away. Uh, but, and then 2007, summer 2007, it was like the second uh, uh, phase conclave where we met in person, Austin, for the first time. Really? I yeah, swear summer I met you 2007. At the first one, I thought I met you before Kate. Huh? Maybe, maybe so. I, I guess I'll have to. I'll have to try to remember better. <laughs> the experiences blend together. I suppose so. Yeah, 2006, 2007. Well, regardless, this is Patrick's first time joining us for a forecast episode. We have done some pretty legendary. We did a collaboration a few years back when we did the Saturn and Capricorn episode, which actually turned out really well in retrospect and in terms of some of our predictions. If people want to go back and listen to some of that, yeah. Uh, let me just say that the um, the uh, the dire tone, which we were trying to manage and yet absolutely snuck through anyway. Ended up being on the nose, right? Yeah, it, 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 <laughs> it aged well as a as a good Saturn podcast should, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was good in the in the lead up to the Saturn Pluto stuff. Um, so speaking of, we've had a lot of Capricorn action going on over the past month. We're getting towards the tail end this week as we're recording this today on January twenty fifth, twenty twenty two. Starting a few minutes ago, probably at like 1:13 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 337th episode of the show. We are getting ready to wind down and end the Venus retrograde. Mercury is also just over halfway through its cycle of retrograding and is about to go back into Capricorn. And then we just had the ingress of Mars into Capricorn, where it's heating up and will heat up in in this month of February. A lot of the same areas of the zodiac and of different people's birth charts as Venus was just going through most of the past month. So why don't we start first by doing a little bit of review since we're now towards the end of the Venus retrograde and we're in the post-Venus retrograde shadow period of how that's been going. Have you guys seen some interesting stories in terms of Venus retrograde? Um, I have one. 
Um, so that Venus retrograde conjunct Pluto is right on an angle for me and I'm in a Capricorn perfection. And so I expected it to matter. Um, <laughs> and we spent most of the first two weeks, um, completely snowed in on top of our, our rural hill. You know, we have a, about a half mile driveway with a 700 foot incline. And we just got, so it was the, the, the day before Christmas and we got uh, like a nice snowfall and that was beautiful. And then on Christmas, it was heavier and it just kept coming and accumulating. And so it was totally impassable. Um, it was kind of, it was a somewhat Venusian, um, quarantine <laughs> entrapment, whatever imprisonment. Cause it was just Kate and I having a nice Christmas. And then the day after, and then the day after, and then the day after, and we're like, okay, uh, it'd be great to get food for the cats. Um, and I have like one fun, I guess, fun um, memory from that. I hiked down um, the <clears throat> the ice and snowbound driveway a couple times up and down in order to get supplies that someone was able to drop off at the bottom of the road. So now I can, um, uh, how should I say, taunt my children with what we had to do. I literally did the walking through the snow and up a hill. And they'll be like, but dad, didn't you have drones that would fly groceries like back and forth from the Amazon warehouse? And you're like, no, son, I had to walk to the end of the driveway. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Um, all right. So I did want to show a graphic uh, that I got from Stella Graphia from Reddit, who, who personalized this for me. This is a Venus retrograde graphic that shows where Venus stationed retrograde uh, later in Capricorn at 26 degrees on December 19th, and then where it retrograded back to at uh, on 29th of January when it stations direct and stations at 11 degrees of Capricorn. And then based on that, what other degrees of different signs that it's aspecting based on the major Ptolemaic aspects during that time. So I'm mentioning this because all of February, even though the Venus retrograde has just ended, Venus is going to be in its post-retrograde shadow phase throughout the entirety of February all the way until March 1st. So it's still going to be retreading over a third time some of those same degrees. And as a result of that, some of the circumstances and events surrounding this may still be being wrapped up or brought to completion or reaching some sort of sense of finality over the course of February. I uh, remembered my story. Um so one thing that uh, about Venus retrograde, uh, eight years ago, uh, during the Venus retrograde of 2014, um, that was when my son was born. Uh, he was born during the Venus retrograde. So now he has just had his birthday. He's gone through his uh, first Venus return with Venus being retrograde and Capricorn, the same sign that it was in you know, the time of his birth. This is his first Venus return, so I was kind of curious to see what would happen because he has Venus retrograde natally. And um, basically, it was his first crush. <laughs> um, uh, that's that's the, the biggest thing that I kind of got out of just observing uh, him in this time is I sort of saw uh that yeah he kind of developed a, a little bit of a crush and so that's yeah that that's one thing i sort of recall from my personal life about uh venus retrograde so i anticipate that age 16 should be uh pretty interesting um you know the next one but um uh the other thing just sort of in the news that i thought was very venus retrograde is this in, this incessant focus on 
Machine Gun Kelly and uh, and uh, Megan Fox. Um, you know, they, apparently they just got engaged, and he gave her a ring which would hurt her if she took it off. Which I thought was, you know, that's a bit Venus Pluto uh, for my taste. Um, <laughs> so that the fact that you know there's been this sort of focus on this sort of strange couple, and you know. Uh, having a, this very uh, public display of affection in this kind of uh, um, almost unhealthy <laughs> or extreme uh, way, I think is very evocative of those uh, themes of um, Venus and uh, Pluto with Venus being retrograde conjunct Pluto. Yeah, I'd like to echo that as I've been kind of doing my thinking and feeling and observing yet another Venus retrograde. The um, the way that, um, how should we say that, Venus retrograde has a way of um, folding pleasure into pain, into and pain into pleasure. Um, I had, I don't know, I, I did a little. I wouldn't call it a ritual, but I, I just kind of sat for a couple hours and wrote my thoughts out during the the Kazemi, and that was one of the biggest themes was the like taking all of your joys and all of your sorrows and kind of and recognizing that it's one thing. Right. Like there are, they're come from the same place. It's the same wavelength of experience. Right. Um, and that was, that felt pretty profound. And so I think that like the, <clears throat> the combination, especially with the Venus retro and Capricorn of like binding, right, with a ring. And then that's a promise, but it's also pain, et cetera, et cetera. That feels like, like kind of the stupid machine gun Kelly version of a very real theme. <laughs> no, no offense to Machine Gun Kelly fans out there, or a lot of offense. Uh, <laughs> but um, I was also, I also just was reminded of the fact that Kim Kardashian also finalized her divorce from Kanye West, and there's uh, been a lot of drama about that because apparently Kanye West decided to buy a house across the street from where Kim Kardashian lives, and like this is just obviously not a healthy way to process, you know, a breakup. Well, and he also like recently released a song where he talked about punching Pete Davidson, who is um, his ex-wife's now new new love interest, which is another funny like Venus retrograde conjunct Pluto thing. Right, and isn't Kanye West now dating Julia Fox? And I don't know. I've just seen a lot of interesting headlines uh, about them. She's a, a, quite a character, it seems. So um, <laughs> we're definitely seeing some interesting new unions being formed. Um, in this uh, in this time with uh, these people who I guess unfortunately for what you know for better or worse probably worse atavistic of you know this um, uh, Venus Pluto complex yeah well and I'm um, quickly pulling up charts because I was just curious where the Venus retrograde hearing that um, machine gun Kelly and Megan Fox got engaged uh, was making me wonder where that's hitting in their chart and both of them actually do have um, Capricorn placements. Like pretty heavily, which is actually pretty striking. If this, because Megan Fox is an astrologer and and mentions astrology like a lot over the course of the past decade in various interviews and even in a movie. And the astrology bit got cut from a movie. This is forty, but I was just watching it the other day and it was actually kind of a funny clip. Um, but if this time is correct, if this chart is correct, she actually has twenty seven Capricorn rising and uh, so there, Venus yeah. stationed like right around the degree of her ascendant. Uh, which is pretty striking. And then MGK has Virgo rising, 
I believe, because I believe she was the one that leaked that put his birth time and his rising sign out in the past year or so, being an astrologer, and he has Saturn at 25 Capricorn in the fifth house. And so Saturn would have stationed on top of that. And that's again kind of impressive in terms of wanting to make a long commitment or a permanent commitment to somebody. So good when times. Is he 32? Did I see the 1990 birth? That appears to be correct. So he's just coming out of his Saturn return. I mean, yeah, Saturn. Well, I, I was thinking of the that's Venus a multiple of the Venus cycle. That's that would th- this is the the fourth synodic return here. Well, at age 32, that's when the Sun, Venus, and Mars come back to their same relative positions in the chart. So he has Venus and Mars in the seventh, and here he is, age 32. You know, having a very Venus and Mars in the seventh type of uh, year. So, yeah, good call, Austin. Yeah, well, that was a good example. Also, just in terms of the Venus-Pluto conjunction, can be very intense and can be very, especially from an outside perspective, can be like, wow, those people are going like way over the top with this. But at least internally, it can just be a very deep sense of like of commitment and passion and um, all the other things related to Venus just turned up to you know, 200%. Well, Hades did kidnap Persephone, right? (laughs) That's kind of- Yeah. And on that less um, uh, lighthearted note, you know, like we talked about in the yearly with Lisa, the uh, Ghislaine Maxwell trial occurred during this Venus retrograde. And then it looked like, I think she was guilty of six charges. And last I heard, there's an issue with some juror. And so it might be a mistrial. And so you might literally have to do a Venus do-over. Was she on right? to retrial? Yeah, like a, a yeah. There, there is something about one of the jurors that opens up the possibility that it'll get overturned and they have to retry her. And um, you know the <clears throat> the topic of um, abduction, right, is very Venus Pluto um, that sort of unpleasant behavior, um, and so. Anyway, that was that was already a hit um, <clears throat> that we talked about last month. But the the having to maybe do it over again is just like double Venus retrograde. Totally, and also just and and also that she was convicted during that time, which is good follow up. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, but yeah, I mean the Venus conjunct Pluto. One of the big themes was that I noticed was um, bringing up past events because symbolically Venus turned around and began re- retracing its steps through the zodiac. As if there was unfinished business from an earlier time that must be revisited, and I just kept seeing people do that, like earlier time revisit something theme over and over again. And in some instances, it seemed like part of the theme was for for certain people when it was tied in with relationships, especially was looking back to remind yourself of not just what you left behind, but in some instances why you left it behind, as a sort of refresher on why you made the right choice to leave something in the past. So obviously there were some people that decided to resume something or not to leave it in the past. For, but for others, it's not always going back to something. But sometimes it's just like a reminder of of what you left behind. Yeah. Um, okay. So I just found something kind of uh, kind of wild or another good hit. I, I agree entirely with what you're saying, Chris. Um, it's a nice way to say it. Um, so as a result of the Gislaine um, Maxwell related stuff. Prince Andrew um, was basically disowned by the family. And check out his chart. Does he have a Venus Mars conjunction at the very end of Capricorn? And, oh, really? <laughs> right? Like, 
it's literally for Venus Mars activity. Right. Yeah. I mean, Venus Mars people for tend to, I won't say for all people who have this aspect, but I will say everyone who seems to get involved in this sort of problem seems to have this aspect. It's worth noting too that um, Epstein himself was born with Venus conjunct Mars in Pisces. And um, when you look at other people who've been ensnared in issues of sexual or social transgressions, you see Venus conjunct Mars. Um, the disgraced former governor of New York, Elliot Spitzer, had Venus conjunct Mars. Uh, Anthony Weiner, um, who was also done by his uh, uh, transgressions on Twitter and sending bad pictures to underage women, like he was born, I believe, with Venus conjunct Mars. So there seems to be this theme with people with Venus conjunct Mars and um, transgressing social boundaries uh, or uh, sexual boundaries. And um, so the fact that we're having this major Venus Mars moment, I wouldn't be surprised if we see Venus Mars individuals like Prince Andrew and others um, kind of rising to the surface in this time, either committing these acts or in some way facing uh, you know, consequences for them. Here's Andrew's chart for the audio listeners. So Mars is at 27 Capricorn, Venus is at 28, and Saturn is at 14. And this is a day chart. And interestingly, that configuration is squaring his midheaven at 22 Aries. Um, so there's some tension there with the career and public profile as, as a result. Yeah, just one thing um, to um, support or to reinforce what Patrick was saying about Venus Mars, um, tight Venus Mars connections and charts, and that being associated with these sort of scandals. Uh, Firmicus Maternus um, spends about a hundred pages <laughs> talking, uh, like just going off um, about um, about Mars's effect on Venus and. It gets so hyperbolic that you're tempted to think that <laughs> this guy's crazy, and it's certainly judgy. But either, uh, he reaffirms over and over again: um, Venus, Mars, and scandal. I believe he used the term "monstrous lusts," um, and then gets very creative with what he imagines uh, these people might be doing. <clears throat> but yeah, it's all over. Um, it's all over Firmicus. Yeah, and so part of the reason we're talking about this is this is going to be one of our ongoing themes this month because Mars literally just yesterday on the 24th or 23rd, I believe, ingressed into Capricorn and it's going to be pursuing Venus, which is slowing down and stationing direct here at the end of January and beginning of February. But because Venus is so slow coming out of its retrograde or its direct station, Mars is in this really unique position that does not happen often where Mars actually catches up to and overtakes Venus uh, in, Ominous. The middle, in the middle of the month. Wait, what did you say? Ominous, really. Ominous, okay. In some ways. I mean, you know, there's some stuff. So Mars, Mars overtakes Venus and the, the principle of Mars in some way um, gets the better of or bests Venus in the middle of the month, especially around the 16th when that conjunction goes exact. And then what's interesting though is after that, in the second half of the month, Venus starts picking up speed and she doesn't do it while still in the same sign of Capricorn. But as soon as the two change signs at the very beginning of March, um, Venus actually overtakes Mars. So there's this really interesting, like, Interconnection and, and, and dance between the two of them, where they're sort of like going back and forth. Uh, you know, one is on top earlier in the month, and then one is on top later on, and and that'll be really interesting to see over the course of the next four weeks. 
Someone just said in the comments that Elliot Spitzer is in the news again because he got caught with another sex worker trying to commit violence against her. Mm. Um, so, Jesus. Um, yeah, I mean, this is uh, uh, Mars, yeah, maltreating Venus, I suppose. Um, one of the ways you could interpret it. Yeah, well, that's certainly one of, you know, I don't know. It's that happens with Mars Venus. It doesn't happen with every person who has a Mars Venus conjunction. Let me uh, just flip it with some other examples. Um, so, of uh, people who fight in cages, MMA people, um, uh, uh, excuse me, they're, uh, some of them are fun to watch and charming and move beautifully. Some are merely effective. Um, of the ones that are fun, charming, like move gracefully, et cetera, et cetera, um, <clears throat> uh, a high number have Mars and Venus in the same sign. A perfect example <clears throat> of a fighter who's um, on top now and has been for a while is uh, Israel Adesanya, who has Mars Venus at the end of Leo and who has been accused of no wrongdoing um, and is super fun and charming and effective. And so this brings up a principle that it's probably worth uh, us talking about because we've just got Mars Venus pretty much, all, well, no, literally all month. And so thinking about the different ways they interplay is probably helpful. So um, while, you know, Mars, uh, as you say, Mars contradicts Venus, some of Venus's desires, um, Venus's help can be very helpful for Mars. And with Israel, right? It's like, well, you already got to fight in a cage, but you can make it fun right? And be charming and make money while doing it. Um, and as I've looked at this for elections, I've tend to think, well, it's not so great for Venus, but this is actually, in some senses, this is bonifying Mars. So Mars is actually going to get it done. It's already in Capricorn, already exalted, but like with a little, you know, grace and panache. Yeah. I'm looking for some other prominent through my files. I just did a search in solar fire for some prominent Venus-Mars conjunctions within five degrees, and I came up with people like Vincent van Gogh, who had it in Pisces in the ninth house just off of the midheaven, um, Charlie Chaplin, Bruce Lee. There's another fighting example for you, Austin. Um, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Amy Winehouse, and Don Donald Glover is another good really example. He has that one in Leah. Well, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson, I believe, is in the news. I, I saw something this morning. People were talking about wanting him to run for president or whatever. It's just um, coincidental. I don't know much about it. I, just, I don't often hear of Dwayne The Rock Johnson, but it came up um, this morning when I was looking at news. Yeah. but um, So to break it down symbolically, though, I mean, one of the nice things about Venus-Mars conjunctions is just that interplay and sometimes a balance between like form and function and between the um you know overt principles of going out and getting something versus the other principle of of standing back and waiting for something to come to you and sometimes the delicate balance between those two impulses that we all have inside of us and sometimes when you go too far in one direction or too far in the other direction um and the the challenge of seeking a balance between those two i think that's part of the interplay that we're going to see over the course of the next 4 weeks Someone just noted in the comments that Kanye West is also a Venus Mars conjunction native. I forgot about that in Taurus. And there's such a um, you can see with a number of these examples. There's um, one thing that none of these people, heroes, villains, and everybody in between lacks is passion. Right? The Venus Mars always brings passion. Um, it can bring 
you know, intemperate, uh, intemperate and destructive passions, but it can bring other types as well. Yeah, passion and uh, an appreciation for the sensual and, and sensuality. Um, so, but one of the things with these random chart examples that we've brought up did really demonstrate it just to bring things full circle is that this graph works really well. Like, if you have planets in these degrees, especially near the stationary degrees, then this Venus retrograde was probably important for you or is important for you for some reason. Um, that may not even be clear yet, but sometimes once you get out of these things, especially once we wrap up the post-shadow phase by the end of the month and it makes its third exact hit to some of these degrees, then I think the, the Venus retrograde should be more clear. Um, especially with the Mars ingress recently moving in, I did horoscopes this month. I wasn't sure if I was going to do them, but it really helped me to crystallize some of these mundane transits by thinking about them in terms of you know, what whole sign house relative to the ascendant was Venus retrograde in, and then as soon as Mars ingress, it just went into the same house. So it's just doubling up on and reasserting and calling for some divisive or um, decisive action when it comes to the same topics. And for some people, that may be challenging. For other people, it may actually be a very productive time of getting certain things done and making a choice between two different things. Um, so I think it would be good for people to think of it in that context as well this month. Someone else just said in the comments that they have uh, Venus and Mars conjunct the sun and that they help employees stop sexual harassment at work and litigate sexual harassment lawsuits. So I think that speaks to another more positive interpretation of Mars and Venus that it still intersects with this topic of social transgressions, but instead of committing them, it's about sort of policing them, you know, and and uh, regulating them. Right, but the, the life still has an intersection with that topic, even if the, the native is not performing the, the activity. There you go. Yeah. And speaking of boundary tr transgressions, I think that was a keyword that you used earlier, Patrick, that made me laugh a little bit because it made me think of what's happening in the news right now with Russia. And of course, all the astrologers are, are you know, very interested in this because this Venus retrograde in Capricorn happens every eight years in roughly the same spot of the zodiac. So if you take it back eight years around this time of the year, Venus was also retrograde. And that was, of course, when Russia annexed Crimea and, and invaded Ukraine previously. So we're seeing a, an interesting repetition of that, or what seems to be what everyone thinks is a buildup to a repetition of that with another potential um, invasion of some sort. Right. I looked back at the previous Venus-Mars conjunctions that were close to the degrees of the upcoming ones in relation to Russia, and it's really interesting because um, there was a Venus retrograde conjunction in Capricorn in 1994, and that was when the Kremlin Accords were signed and were being negotiated, where basically um, the, the uh, basically the Ukraine agreed that uh, they would hand over the nuclear arsenal to uh, Russia, and it was um, uh, it was kind of a time of de-escalation in some ways, which is interesting because everything right now seems to be amping up towards escalation. So one of my hopes is is that maybe. The conjunction of, from, from Venus will soothe this separative Mars to some extent. Of course, it could also represent a potential, uh, you know, circling back around to sort of, you know, going from these times of de-escalation after, right after the Cold War ended, towards, um, you know, kind of getting, uh, making up for it or repairing what was was uh, sort of broken, which kind of ties back to something that Putin has said about the fall of the Soviet Union, right? He says it's this big tragedy and has to be sort of undone in some sense. 
Yeah, that was what I was kept coming back to because I had three questions as I was researching this astrologically, which is one, why is the sign Capricorn seem to be important for Russia with that Venus retrograde eight years ago coinciding with the annexing of the Crimea? And then why is this current retrograde in Capricorn again coinciding with the buildup? Especially it seems like if it does happen, it'll happen when not just Venus has just stationed direct in Capricorn, but also Mars has ingressed into Capricorn and Mercury will also retrograde back into and station direct in Capricorn this month. So one of my questions is why is Capricorn important for Russia? Um, two, why is this current Venus retrograde cycle important for Russia? And three, um, what is the relevance of these uh, of the Saturn Neptune cycle, which is a separate thing that's going to complete in a few years for Russia? So um, a lot of astrologers famously think back to there were some predictions that were made in the early 1980s by astrologers. For example, in a book on mundane astrology by Nick Campion and Charles Harvey and Michael Bajant, where they predicted the downfall of the Soviet Union uh, under the triple conjunction of Uranus and Neptune and uh, Uranus, Neptune, and Saturn. Saturn, yeah, at the end of the 80s and Capricorn at around 1989. And of course, that is when. The Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union started to disintegrate over the course of the next couple of years. Um, so that was also in the sign of Capricorn. So it's interesting that there's something about that. And when I was researching this, reading Nick Campion's Book of World Horoscopes, he had a bunch of charts for Russia. And the early 20th century charts did not feature Capricorn um, prominently, really, at all. It wasn't major in terms of the revolution in 1917 or anything else. But when it did become important was with the breakup of the Soviet Union in the late 80s and early 90s. And you just see a ton of repetition of Capricorn placements, not just with outer planets, but sometimes with inner planets and luminaries like the sun and the moon. So I think what's happening actually with these two Venus retrogrades that we've experienced with Venus going retrograde in Capricorn is it harkens back to that statement um, that Putin made in 2005 where he called the collapse of the Soviet Union a major geopolitical disaster of the century or or the major geopolitical disaster of the century i'm not sure if the translation's right but um you know and it made me realize that what it is it's is venus is going back in this instance because part of what he's doing is he's going back and trying to reclaim and reintegrate some territories that used to be part of the soviet union before they broke up and that's the going back and reconciling something theme that's coming out here with the Venus retrograde in both instances in Capricorn. And that's why it relates back to Capricorn, because that's the signs that were so active and so emphasized at the breakup of the Soviet Union. So he's trying to put something back together that was broken apart previously. Saturn-Neptune conjunction cycle goes further back, if you want to tell us about those Saturn-Neptune conjunctions. Um, yeah. So I was talking to Nick Dagan Best, and he had done a lot of work on this. You've Both of you have looked into that as well, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can just kind of tell the whole story of the Soviet Union with Saturn Neptune conjunctions. Like beginning um beginning Saturn uh, Stalin dies in the middle and then end. There were three. It's literally those are the those are the three biggest events in, in the beginning, the death of the first, you know, whatever big leader and then the end. And then you can uh, half it and quarter it, and it just um, uh, the uh, Soviet history just tracks perfectly with the Saturn-Neptune cycle. 
Right. You basically so to sort of take you through it, 1917, that was the Bolshevik Revolution. That was under a Saturnaptic conjunction. The next one was 1953. That was the year Stalin died. It also happened to be the year Putin was born. So Putin was born under the same Saturn-Neptune conjunction that uh, Stalin died under. And then Soviet Union broke up in 1989. So naturally, everyone's looking ahead to 2026. Um, you know, and there's any number of possibilities, you know, about uh, what that could mean for Russia. Yeah. Let's just say that um, it's like the Uranus and Gemini for the United States. It looks very different every time, but it's very significant both at the time and sets a direction um, that lasts for decades to come. It's just like a key inflection point. Right. Yeah, um, for sure. And it'll be very interesting to see what happens over the course of the next month because the Mars ingress is now going to speed up and bring some greater tension and quicken the pace of events in the same sign that it's integrated into, where Venus was already retrograding all of this stuff. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens over the course of the next few weeks. And let's leave it at that. I did want to pull up, um, I have another diagram that shows the Mercury retrograde as well, which even though we're coming out of it, that's one of the things that's ending when Mercury stations direct on February 3rd. So it's stationing direct at 24 degrees of Capricorn, pretty closely conjunct Pluto. Um, but that's also going to be emphasizing the Capricorn area of the chart. And then its post-retrograde shadow period is not going to end until February 24th once it passes 10 degrees of Aquarius, because that was the degree that it stationed retrograde at. Um, so some of that is still going to be operative all the way through the first three weeks of the month in terms of at least not having it as intense as you know, when you're in the middle of the Mercury retrograde, but there's still some like cleanup stuff that's happening um, over the course of that few week period in a post retrograde shadow. Yeah, there's so there's something I wanted to say about that and a couple other things. Just the beginning of the month, the month begins Venus just stationed direct, and then Mercury stations direct during the first week of February. Um, but both are still, uh, you know, both have a fair way to go to climb out. Of uh, from their descent, and so we're we're in that sort of you know one week apart staggered like okay now it's direct but they're both slow um, and they need a little time to get moving. Yeah, sort of the the hangover phase almost is what I call it sometimes. <laughs> I um, wish uh, Mercury retrogrades were um, partying and getting drunk. Yeah, I mean it depends on what kind of. People you're hanging out with, but yeah, I guess Pluto is not the soberest of. Uh, well, Pluto is actually much more sober than if it was a Mercury retrograde, like conjunct Neptune or something like that. Yeah, right. Um, one thing we don't have to go into too much detail about it, but uh, one thing I've just sort of noticed about Mercury Pluto conjunctions, uh, especially when Mercury is like retrograde around uh, Pluto, is that it seems to describe times of consequential announcements or so, like. The disclosure of private information or secret es uh, information, espionage. Um, it also, at least in the political sphere, it's also coincided with times of of like defections and bipartisan um, uh, activities, where you get sort of turncoats or people who, you know, um, who turn on their own um, in some sense, and that has you know some pretty obvious connections to like. The nature of Mercury being more sort of ambiguous, being a sort of uh, trickster figure, or, or uh, um, <laughs> uh, 
uh, duplicitous <laughs> figure at times as well. That makes perfect sense. It's, he's like an eight, Mercury's totally an agent, right? Right. Yeah. So, like, you know, the, uh, it's not a comprehensive list or anything, but there are just like a few times where, like, it took just a few people from one side, like, voting one particular way to have a kind of a big impact on things. So, like, for example, uh, all the way back in the 80s when Reagan voted, uh, nominated, like, Robert Bork to go on the Supreme Court. Um, on that day, that was the day that I was born, Mercury was retrograde conjunct Pluto. And that was when six GOP members joined the Democrats in voting down Bork. So that was pretty huge. You know, and even that term Borking is still used as like a verb to sort of signify like this sort of betrayal or something, or, uh, you know, unfairly attacking someone or something like that. Um, and then, and then interestingly, uh, in December of 1998, that was when Democrats joined with the GOP to impeach Clinton. Um, wasn't success- successful ultimately, but it took like a few turncoats, you know, that was when Mercury was conjunct Pluto. And that's interesting as well, because Clinton himself uh, was born with Mercury conjunct Pluto. And then you see a few other things involving Clinton with Mercury-Pluto conjunctions. In January of 2005, he teamed up with W. Bush. Um, for Haiti earthquake relief. And actually, W. Bush was also born with a Mercury-Pluto conjunction. So you see these two presidents from two parties uh, who are uh, sort of coming together, they're, you know, transcending the sort of boundaries, crossing that uh, sort of threshold. Bush Sr. was also like the head of the CIA at one point, which is a nice little Mercury-Pluto thing. Uh, yeah, I don't know that H.W. Bush had the Mercury-Pluto conjunction, but W has the Mercury-Pluto mm. conjunction. Oh, right. And Leo. Um, yeah. And there was another time in, in uh, 2000, and I actually think that was January 2010 that W. Bush teamed up with Clinton. It was actually in 2005 that Clinton teamed up with H.W. Bush for, I think, an Indian Ocean relief effort. But, um, and that was also at a Mercury-Pluto conjunction. So, there are a few other ones. Uh, probably the most recent one was from uh, 2016. In December, uh, right after the election, there was this movement among some members from the Electoral College to get people to overturn um, the uh, or to alter their vote from what the popular from what the um, electoral vote was at the time of the 2016 election. The so-called faithless electors. Electoral College tried to persuade the fellow electors to switch away from Trump. And what ended up happening at the Mercury-Pluto conjunction itself, when Mercury was retrograde and conjunct Pluto, they actually had a few Democratic electors defecting away from Hillary, even though she wasn't in you know, contention to, to win it at that point anyway. So you see this, so I guess the theme of Mercury-Pluto conjunction, especially when Mercury is kind of acting irregularly, we seem to see uh, just crossovers and... Um, and uh, defections and and uh, unusual alliances uh, forming, and I would think that you know to to your point about uh, Gillian Maxwell and that trial and everything. One of the sort of question marks right now is that um, uh, just a few days ago, Gillian Maxwell said that she has stopped trying to keep the so-called eight John Doe's names from being kept secret, and so that would be everyone's wild. kind of waiting on beta breath to hear, like, you know, what are those names going to be? And I think that announcement will probably come when Mercury finally stations direct. I imagine that would be when the judge sort of makes the official sort of order to make some of these names public. And that would potentially cause the supporters of those people, if they're somehow implicated as being, you know, involved in uh, some of these crimes, you might see 
their supporters turn on them. You might see some crossing of party lines and people condemning the figures who are brought up in um, that disclosure. Yeah. Disclosures was a major theme that we talked about last fall when Mercury stationed Square Pluto, I think. And what was that that came out? It wasn't the Pandora Papers, but it was the other one? It was the Pandora Papers. Okay. Yeah. The Panama Papers came out under a different Mercury retrograde. Um, the uh, And so this is especially interesting with Gila Maxwell because she was born with Gemini rising with Mercury and Capricorn. So, um, you know what? You know this. This clear. This Mercury retrograde going back into Capricorn is is going to be. Um, uh, there'll be some sort of yeah pronouncement or announcement or leak or something that communicates something which was previously you know considered too volatile and too charged to uh, be public. So yeah, or something that was just hidden or buried for some reason. Uh, so in terms of dates, so we're, we're talking about this because right in the first week on the third, Mercury stations directing Capricorn uh, pretty close to Pluto, but then it's the following week that the exact conjunction between Mercury and Pluto, the third exact conjunction, because we've had two already, uh, takes place on the 11th of February. And then this whole conjunction probably isn't over until Mercury departs from Capricorn and moves into Aquarius the following week on February 14th, where we have a very romantic-looking Mercury ingress into Aquarius on Valentine's Day. Well, some of us have Venus in Aquarius, Chris. Okay, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not knocking it. Uh, that's, you know, I'm trying to think what's a, how does a Mercury in Aquarius communicate like love and affection on on Valentine's Day? Binary. Through what? binary code zero zero one 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 zero. That's a good one. Through like a, a robot a code. Uh, I like that. Through uh, through Morse code. Through astrology. Oh yeah, through astrology. Intellectually, that would be that would make sense. Um. All right. So that's good for the Mercury stuff. I'd like to touch base, unless there's any other review stuff, because we're. Going back and forth between some past and some future, since we're in the middle of cycles that are like carrying over from the past and that we've seen part of play out already and that will carry forward into the future. I know there was one thing you wanted to touch on, Austin, which is just like things that we meant to say in the year, year ahead forecast that we forgot to or didn't. Yeah, because we had we had some sort of debriefing afterwards and we were like, shit, we should have talked about blank. And I don't remember all of them. Um, you brought up one. Uh, which was the, um, how should we say, the ongoing, the continuing of the the labor struggle themes, the unionization, which we talked about all last year, but somehow forgot to talk about during the actual yearly. Yeah, because that was a major Saturn Uranus theme that we kept seeing come up over and over again, and then did actually come up again even more at the end of December, very close to the third exact, third and final exact Saturn Uranus square. But we've continued to see uh, things having to do with labor and unions and some of the tensions between you know, employers and employees and, and different things like that um, be relevant. And I think we're going to continue to see that, especially uh, over the course of this year, especially later this year when that square comes back into being operative again um, in the third quarter, because we know it's going to come back within about a degree around September and October. But even before then, because Uranus keeps getting supercharged this year due to the nodes and the eclipses and other things like that, we may see it popping up around those times as well. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, there was the uh, over the last month, there were last month and a half, there were a number of events. I know one thing that I kept seeing was um, information coming out um, about how poorly a lot of the Amazon workers were. Um, you know, I didn't, I, I never assumed that um, Bezos was doing right by everybody, but there were a lot of uh, relatively shocking cases of. I don't even call it negligence or, or even cruelty. Wasn't there a tornado that was threatening a, a warehouse yeah. and they, they told them to stay there and then people got people died in the, the tornado ripping the warehouse apart? Mm. And they, they were, yeah, they're like to text their loved ones. They weren't sure they were going to make it. And I mean, I don't know how that didn't have a, a bigger impact. Someone brought up a really, um, yeah, tornadoes in the warehouse. That's pretty sad in Uranus. Um, someone uh, brought something up in the chat that I thought was uh, kind of interesting. They said, do you think the Saturn Uranus square is relevant to the great resignation? And um, I think that certainly is relevant. I think it's, I, I kind of got more of an impression of that from Saturn in Aquarius since that uh, happened so close to the beginning of the pandemic when a lot of people for the first time were given the opportunity to, to pause on their work and decide whether or not they wanted to do it. And of course, Saturn is the planet of no. And uh, I think it's really interesting that in the US, we have this phenomenon of the Great Resignation, but also in China, at the same time, Chinese millennials, they're calling it the lie down movement, um, which is basically the same idea, same sort of thing. They're getting burnt out by um, these uh, extraordinary uh, schedules being placed on them, and they decided that they'd rather lie down, you know, <laughs> rather than work. So, And they take hilarious pictures and put them on social media of just doing nothing like in the middle of different locations. Yeah, this is really this is really kind of an interesting connecting bridge between like, you know, overworked US and Chinese millennials is that they're both participating in this Saturnian, you know, movement to just stop. I've seen on um on Reddit there's this one subreddit that's become huge over the course of the past year even 2021 called anti-work. Anti-work. It says a subreddit for those who want to end work or curious about ending work, want to get the most out of work, free life want more information on anti-work ideas and want personal help with their own job slash work-related struggles as 1.7 million um, subscribers, I guess, on that subreddit alone. And it keeps hitting the front page, which is the only reason I, I know about it, because I keep seeing it on the front page of Reddit semi-regularly over the past 12 months. It's hilarious, some of the pictures. <laughs> so what is it about the symbolism? What What is the symbolism? Can we, can we pick that apart a little bit of Saturn square Uranus of like why this is showing up so clearly when it comes to labor and like work-related issues? Or what are the themes that we can take from that that might be applicable to other spheres of people's lives? So I have a, a couple reads on it. One, I think Patrick's right in that it it is also just Saturn and Aquarius, right? And Saturn, Saturn, um, would like to not move. Thank you very much. Right, slow, heavy, the the least happy to move of any of the planets, um, and just has associations with that. And then the Aquarius side of Saturn is um, uh, when we're looking at the Aquarius side, um, you often see the sort of um, boundariness that you always get with Saturn. Um, but from by um, going to the out, like going away, like crossing the wall so that, you know, whatever is on the other side. A lot of times with Capricorn, we get more of a, I'm stuck inside the walls. Saturn Aquarius is more, I'm going to be stuck outside uh, or I'm going to exile myself. And then 
with Uranus and Taurus, it's also a theme. Labor is a theme um, by in and of itself. And I think the Uranian shocks uh, to Saturn are bringing about uh, what are um, Saturnian significations really quickly. And, you know, the, the changed chaotic circumstances have pushed trends that were already there. Almost all of this stuff was already there. All of the things that people are getting fed up with. It's just that it got, um, you know, it got put on fast forward by Uranus. I would also say that like, yeah, Uranus is the great, you know, destabilizer. Uranus is, is, is disruption. And so the consequences of people saying no, that Saturnian superpower, um, you know, saying no, uh, it, it, it comes with risks. It comes with, you know, the loss of livelihood. And, and I think, uh, that Uranus is square to Saturn shows that sort of dynamic of of saying no at a cost, you know, or, or or taking some risk in 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 doing so, and then the consequences of that are then that places are understaffed, and that there are sort of continuing supply chain issues and and all these things. Um, so that's how I see how it's related to to Saturn Uranus. I see Uranus is disrupting. The, the status quo in this regard and because of you know people's insistence that you know uh, a new kind of agreement or new standards are um, observed you know for people's dignity for people's livelihoods and um, so forth yeah and and also with Saturn and Uranus you're saying the status quo and that's Saturn and just you know what happens when you have an entrenched status quo, and you have a power differential differential between two groups, and one group is really happy with the status quo, and is is profiting from it or is gaining from it for some reason, and wants to keep things the same. Versus you have another group that maybe is at a disadvantage over time with that um, situation and wants it to change. And sometimes when those two can't come into an agreement or are so far out of alignment, they reach a pivotal breaking point where um, the Uranian side, especially, um, wants to rebel and wants to like reject everything. And seeing some of these protests and like picket lines and stuff, there's like a local um, grocery store here in in Colorado right now where they've gone on strike, and, and strikes have become like a major recurring theme over the past few months of people just like completely grinding the entire system to a halt and banding together in solidarity and forming alliances in order to force the sort of establishment to make a change that they're reluctant to that they don't want to do but eventually through um, those sort of alliances are able to Force some sort of change by creating an, a completely untenable situation where the entire structure of everything could just fall apart and go away if there isn't some sort of change that's made. And so, in distilling it down to that, I can also see how sometimes that's happening in people's personal lives where the Saturn thing is something that's been that way for so long that it doesn't seem like it's something that can change or that you want to change or that you're willing to put the change. The effort into to, to changing, but then something comes along that forces it because it creates such a disruption and a destabilization that you can't but give in to some level of change of, of some extent, sometimes minorly and sometimes really major um, disruptions and changes. But 
something has to change, and there's a situation that comes up that forces that. Yeah, I mean, I'd say the dark side of this dynamic as well is probably the way in which Uranus can uh, push Saturn to sort of extremes or to go beyond the bounds of or reasonable bounds of. And so I think it's interesting to see how like a lot of the anti-mask movements and protests have been seemingly sort of uh, getting louder and, and being more amplified. And um, that is sort of taking that Saturnian principle of rejection to an absurd degree, you know, even in the face of a pandemic, you know, uh, sort of rejecting sort of common sense methods to reduce the spread of transmissible virus, you know, is uh, <laughs> sort of holding to that, you know, despite to uh, cutting the nose off despite the face, basically. So it's like the idealization of the rebellious principle or the idealization of the, you know, person that breaks away from the crowd and, and goes against the status quo, even in instances where maybe that's like not as impressive as, as it might seem to some people. Yeah, I think that um, fundamentally Saturn and Uranus drive each other crazy, hmm. right? If you have somebody who's um, very Uranian, Right, so um, freedom is a very uh, is high among their ideals and virtues. Um, they want to be able to experiment. They don't want to be told how to do everything. And you stick them in a room with Saturn, who's like, no, no, there's a right way to do things. It's important that you follow the rules. That Uranian person is going to be driven crazy. And if you have a Saturnian person who's like, no, no, there's a there's a right way and a wrong way to do this. Let's do it slowly, carefully, and according to protocol. And they want that, and there's a Uranian person constantly challenging them, being like, "Yeah, but what if we do it this way? Have you thought about it this way?" It's going to drive the Saturnian person nuts, and so that's part of just the dynamic with Saturn Uranus. Um, you know, it's uh, it's hard enough to get them to agree when they're in a trine, but when they're in a in a hard aspect, um, they just drive each other nuts. Right. Totally. You have to be, well, you know, and so historically, and and also natally for those who have it, you know, we we sometimes get cast as the uh, the diplomat or the negotiator between two archetypally conflicted um, personages or energies. Yeah. Um, so speaking of that, I think that's a good segue to talk about our very first lunation, which activates that square. And that is super early in the month. Um, so it's a little bit on the border, depending on your time zone here in Denver and Mountain Time. It's on the 31st of January, but on the East Coast time, it's already Feb early on February 1st. But we have a new moon at 12 degrees of Aquarius. And what's interesting is that it's separating from the square with Uranus, both luminaries are, which is at 10 degrees of Taurus. And then immediately after the conjunction, both luminaries apply to the conjunction with Saturn at 15 degrees of Aquarius. So in some way, this lunation is very much activating that square, and it's kind of stuck in between a rock and a hard place in terms of those two energies, but moving from the Uranian and heading towards the Saturnian. One of the things I've sort of noticed with like new moons, full moons, or you know, these uh, you know, conjunctional lights to Saturn or or other planets is you often can see what uh, the mood is by like the memes that are circulating around that time. So I'm reminded of 
last year when we had the Sun-Saturn conjunction at the inauguration, um, the big meme of that time was, you know, that grim-faced Bernie Sanders, you know, uh, with his coat on, you know, sitting in the cold, looking all serious. And people sort of took this very Saturnian image and made it into, you know, comedic gold. And so I would assume that, um, you know, with both luminaries, you know, coming to conjoin Saturn in that frosty sign of Aquarius once more, that uh, we might see some uh, meme arise in that time um, around those days uh, that uh, focuses on the way people look when they're sad or old or something like that. Because there was a similar sort of meme when the moon was conjunct, like a huge pileup in Capricorn, Saturn, where people were posting photos of themselves with this app that aged them by however many years they set. So everyone was posting these pictures of themselves as old people under this big like moon Saturn thing, which I thought was just you know kind of hilarious. So I would I would wonder if there would be some kind of uh, evolution on that theme with this new moon. So did you just prophesy that a new meme shall arise? Yeah, <laughs> the meme the the meme prophet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess so. I, I yeah, that is my prediction is that there will be a meme which fits the themes of that uh, Sun Moon Saturn lineup. That's the 21st century version of like the three wise men, like the three wise men. Like, <laughs> yeah, is, I mean, I'm not saying it's like you know the the Jesus of memes, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that uh, that there'll be some meme that goes around that's that's that encapsulates those themes of like saying no or or uh, shutting someone down or or being cold or being sort of grouchy and being satinine, right? Yeah, being, being yeah, it'll be something like that. I I I wish I could be more precise you know maybe if you dug into like the you know duads and deccans and everything you know you might be able to get some more detail on that but that's i'm afraid that's like the most i could say about it even memes aside like last year you mentioned that that meme and that picture of bernie sanders came out of the inauguration but that inauguration itself was like the most locked down inauguration ever where there were just like fences and like military and that place was um, much more um, sparse than it's ever been. There's usually like huge crowds and everything, but part of the reason it was it was coming off of the uh, coup attempt on January 6th when there was this riot at the Capitol building and the Capitol was whatever happened, pillaged or whatever. And so you were coming out of that Uranian event, and then we were left with like the Saturnian event of just like everything being on complete lockdown by the time of the inauguration two or three weeks later. Yeah, great point. So similar similar themes there, going from the Uranian and heading towards the Saturnian. Perfect. Um, all right. So um, that new moon is happening there on the first day. My election is for is very early in the month, so I do want to mention that next. But do either of you have anything else you want to say about this lunation before we before we move on? Yeah. Um- so aside from the, you know, it activates Saturn Uranus, um, but very much on the Saturn side, and it's only a few days before the sun's perfect conjunction, the Kazemi with Saturn. Yeah. And I think that's really a, a, a you know, it, it's a moment that happens once a year, and it's really a, a moment of sitting with sort of what the what the challenge is, like what the situation is. And that perfects on February 4th, just quickly. Yeah. And there's, you know, with Saturn, it's like, okay, this is, so I guess it's this way for now. And then, you know, of course you then ask, okay, well, 
So what do I do about that? How do I handle that? Um, can that change? How does that change? But it's very much sitting with the structure of how things are now. Yeah, there's a somberness or a soberness to it in the reflection on that. So both in terms of the new moon on the first, as well as especially that Sat Sun-Saturn conjunction that's happening on February 4th. Low sentiment, I guess you could say. Yeah, and of course this is happening right as Mercury is stationing direct in Capricorn, Venus is now moving forward, and Mars is quickly closing the distance to Venus. So it's like we're coming out of this Mercury retrograde period of some things being thrown up in the air or having to go back and revisit and revise previous things, not just with Mercury and our communications, but also with Venus and our relationships and our social contracts. And um, the sun and the moon are just coming off of this disruptive square with Uranus. And so then you get this sober like assessment period of how are we going to move forward from here uh, during this first week of February? So talking about Saturn is drying out my eyes. <laughs> yeah, I like your I like your dynamic lighting there. We were saying before <laughs> yeah, we started recording, the you need like a cigarette and just like some smoke going off of it. <laughs> I tried turning on the ring light to balance it out, but it's no match for the sun. Okay, that's hey. all right. <laughs> Get a little uh, noir score there. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. Well, I do want to make sure that I mention our electional chart for the month because that takes place on February 2nd, 2022 at 8.15 a.m. with Pisces rising. So let me see if I can pull that up here on the screen. Yeah, this is a nice one. Yeah, you've seen this this chart. You're paying attention to those, those Pisces rising charts this month because Mars now that it has gotten out of Sagittarius, it's freed up Jupiter, so it's no longer uh, squaring Jupiter and overcoming it. But also, it's freeing up the other mutable angles, so you can do mutable signs rising without making Mars super angular by sign in the in the chart. So here's our election, February second, eight fifteen a.m. We're going to put Jupiter right on the ascendant. So basically, just take this chart, set it for February second in your location. Set it for about 8.15, but then adjust the ascendant until Jupiter is right there on the ascendant at about seven degrees of Pisces. So what you end up with is like one of the best possible situations in terms of essential dignity and in terms of traditional astrology for the planet Jupiter, where Jupiter is on the ascendant, it's in its own sign, it's one of its traditional signs of Pisces. It's in a day chart, so Jupiter is fully benefic, it's of the sect in favor, has no afflictions. Has a nice little sextile from Venus and Mars up there in Capricorn. The moon is also in early Pisces and it's applying to a conjunction with Jupiter in the rising sign or in the first whole sign house, with Jupiter also ruling the 10th house of career and reputation and public life. So, this is just an amazing Jupiter election for growth, expansion, optimism, even idealism, even potentially some creative things, since, of course, this also um, has a little bit of that Jupiter Neptune co presence goodness, which is giving a sort of idealistic bent, but also potentially a creative or illusory bent if you want to create something that looks sort of dazzling in some sense. Uh, it's the, the downside for the chart, it's not that great for friends and groups and alliances because as Mars in the 11th house in a day chart, 
This is early in the month, so Mercury is still a little bit retrograde, but it's about a day and a half from stationing direct. So it's pretty close to stationary direct so that you can use it, but just be aware of that in terms of using this chart versus another one in terms of retrogrades. Uh, it's also still very close to the Sun-Saturn conjunction. If you can try to mitigate that by putting the midheaven sextile to the Sun and Saturn within three degrees by backing up the time just, just a few minutes uh, in your location. So that's it. What do, you, what do you guys think? So you've seen charts, you're looking forward to charts like this now that Mars is out of Sagittarius Austin? Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> we've only got so much Jupiter and Pisces. You know, you should be looking at the moon's monthly conjunction to Jupiter uh, for the next four months, like as a starting point, right? Um, uh, I, but yeah, I, I, there were some things I'd hoped to get together um, for that election, but had to put off a little bit because everything's retrograde. Um, one thing I was just going to add to Jupiter significations, especially when it's a strong Jupiter in the first or 10th, it's, it's just success and winning, right? Th and those are very old significations, but those are things people like. You know, you're like, I, would you like to succeed at what you're starting <laughs> at this particular date? Um, Jupiter can help. Yeah, that makes me think of the the hermetic lot of Jupiter is the, the lot of uh, Nike, which means or Nike, which means victory. Yeah, the lot the lot of victory is Jupiter's lot. Um, yeah, so Jupiter, if you if you like if you like victory, you might want to use this this you election. Like yeah, if you like like winning, uh, this is a good electional chart. So we actually found uh, three or four other electional charts in February, which are available in our monthly auspicious elections podcast, which Lisa Scheim and I just released today, actually to patrons through our page on patreon.com slash astrology podcast. So if you go there and you go to the what $20 tier, you will see how to get access to that recording. And if you need elections for later in the year, we also recently released our full 2022 auspicious elections year ahead report, where we picked out one auspicious electional chart for each of the next 12 months. So you can find that at chrisbrennanastrology.com slash 2022 elections. All right. So those are our elections. I'm sorry, it just occurred to me that if yeah. I had different personal tastes, I could um I could have totally branded something with auspicious. Awesome. Ooh, Austin auspicious. Yeah. yeah. If I might uh, my I, I one of my brand to be groaners. I mean, we still have. Uh, we're still looking for. You know, we could do a mug. We could do the Austin auspicious uh, <laughs> astrology podcast mug. Uh, lots of people are sending in funny pictures on like Instagram and stuff, getting receiving their sure mugs from me over the course of the past month through our new merch store at theastrologypodcast.com/slash/merch. <laughs> so maybe that's your angle for the Austin mug. Maybe we finally found it. Austin the auspicious. That's that's terrible. Um, <laughs> Man, my, my mom's side of the family just calls me Oss, so I mean, that's okay. what popped into my head. Oh man, you're gonna start some memes here that you don't want to see the yeah, end. Yeah, probably. Of, so. I should probably shut the fuck up. Right. <laughs> All right. So um, let's see. We are halfway through, so I should probably mention our sponsor this month as well. Um, and our sponsor this month is this awesome little company that I found called Ephemeris.co, where they make little pendant necklaces with your birth chart, your actual birth chart imprinted on them. So if you go to ephemeris.co, you can enter in your birth data and enter in your birth information. And I worked with them because they originally they did, I think, quadrant houses, but I said, you know, we I use whole site houses, so I couldn't really 
endorse this unless you had that. And they actually were very flexible and integrated whole sign houses for me so I could get an awesome little pendant necklace with my birth chart in it. <clears throat> so they say you can deeply connect with your birth chart and use it as a sort of daily ritual. It's gender neutral and looks good on any outfit. Um, so if you go to their website, you see the different options for it. You can also get an engraving on the back of it, which is a cool little feature, especially if you're getting it as a gift. And they also have some uh, different birth chart reports that you can order through their website. So if you want to get a 10% discount on the pendant, just enter the promo code, all one word, astrology podcast, ideally all in capital letters, but I don't think it matters, at ephemeris.co. And if you go to ephemeris.co slash necklace, that'll take you right to this specific product, which is their actual pendant. So I thought that was pretty cool. I've been talking to them about some other customization options, like maybe um, if it just showed, for example, their default one shows all of your modern planets, including Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. But if like you wanted to do one that just showed the seven traditional visible planets, that would be kind of cool. Or even one where it just shows like your sun, moon, and rising might be interesting for some people as well. So they said those are some options we could talk about, which is pretty interesting. And I think people should should check it out. That's cool. It would be um, it would be fun if they could do square ones too. If somebody wanted to, to like rock their medieval chart. <laughs> oh yeah, like a medieval, like a square chart, or like the triangle just, chart, or even like a like a Rashi chart from like Indian astrology. Yeah, just like a like a I don't know, like a three by three inch <laughs> thick steel plate. No, but uh, right. Uh, anyway, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, the only people that would not like that you don't want to get this a present for is people that don't want to share their birth chart. So the the Scorpio risings in your family may not be super thrilled about that gift, but for those that do otherwise like showing it off, it so, is it's a it's a great astrologer gift. Yeah, that's really funny. Yeah. All right. So I think that's good for this midway part through the show. So we've gotten a full week, maybe a few days, maybe first half of, of the way into the month. So why don't we pull up week two and see where we're at and maybe get a little bit further into the month. So here's the I've been showing the um, illustrations that Zartana did for me this month, as she's been doing for the past several months for the different weeks. We've talked about the Sun-Saturn conjunction. The same day, there's also a Mars-Jupiter sextile, where Mars transiting through Capricorn sextiles Jupiter and Pisces. I kind of like that. That's a little productive. It's like not super standout aspect, but it seems it seems useful. It seems good and productive to go along with that Sun-Saturn conjunction. What do you guys think? Yeah, and um, think uh, that reminds me of something that I made a note to talk about, and then I left that notebook um, somewhere that I can't find it. So, one, I agree that it's useful um, because that Sun Saturn can be very can be uh, can be a pretty demotivating sort of it is what it is. Um, but Mars Jupiter is very much, and you can do stuff about it. Um, like that Mars, that Mars and Cap energy is very willing to endure the suffering of work to change situations. And Jupiter, you know, Jupiter adds both the hopeful as well as the winning quality. But one of the things I wanted to say is I was thinking about this. Um, I, I, I could leave it at the Pisces moon, if you would. I was, I was kind of, um, marveling at how few signs the visible planets are in. Mm. And then that got me thinking about um, midpoints and scissor yogas. 
Um, and so, you know, if we're if we're looking at the chart with that Sun Saturn in the middle, uh, that Sun Saturn in Aquarius, but we've got multiple planets in Pisces, and we have multiple planets in Capricorn. The midpoints between the Pisces and Capricorn uh, planets are all falling into Aquarius, making that Sun Saturn really the center of things. And the the you know scissor yogas are, which can be uh, fortunate or unfortunate are uh, very similar to the principle of midpoints is that if you have at least a, one planet in each sign flanking a given sign the combination of their influence affects the the house in the middle and so it's just thinking about how you know if we take that flanking principle and that midpoint principle um almost all of the planets energy kind of uh, you know makes a sandwich out of that sun saturn yeah, that's a really good point. And that um, actually ties into the concept of spear bearing in ancient astrology, especially with the sun, where if you have planets that are rising before the sun, they um, announce and they kind of like lead before and act as like the bodyguards that run in front of the sun. I actually was having some um, insomnia over the past few nights and was like waking up at 5 a.m. and like sitting there eating a snack. And I looked out at the window and there was this super bright star that was like rising up over the horizon just before sunrise. And I was like, what the hell is that? And it turned out to be Venus. So, this little picture for those watching the video version that I shot of Venus rising over the eastern horizon, you can actually see it because it's retrograded and it's getting ready to station direct. You can actually see it um, as a super bright star a little bit before sunrise. Um, you can also see Mars, but it's a little bit more dim. But these are some shots that I was able to take in my sleepless state. Uh, I even went out to the roof and like took some pictures the other night, and you can just see Venus as a super bright star. So that you saying that made me think of that. Yeah, yeah, and that's um, and there um, there are in Vedic astrology there are uh, forget the names offhand, but there are uh, several yogas that are just for the sun that where the qualification is that rising just before or uh, or rising just after, um, and in this case we've got a ton of both, and so they just seem I don't I don't have an a, a, like a, a brilliant read on what exactly that means, but I wanted to bring it up because it seemed it, that's pretty significant. Yeah, I mean, it was significant in ancient astrology because it seemed like they treated it as doing serving two functions. Um, one of them is like a protective function for the sun or for the luminaries, so that they were literally protected in some way from harm. But another thing it seems like it was used for was an eminence factor when it shows up in birth charts that it indicated the birth of people that were important at the time, just like a king would have people surrounding them like advisors and secret service and bodyguards and stuff like that, that a person who was important would also have something like that that partially like announce or herald their birth. Especially if it's like really close to the degree of the heliacal rising, right? When it's actually making that rising from the beams of the sun. Yeah, yeah. And in this case, where it's one sign separation. Yeah. Um, but there, uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, I always, I, I always thought of the, um, the preceding the sun and following the moon, or following the sun 
the um, in rising and in, and then following and setting uh, uh, combinations as like it's your entourage or it's the entourage which like you know come you know opens the door says guess who's coming um, and however many planets all sort of uh, testify to the the character of of the sun which is about to arrive um, and then with the following right you have like you have the train uh, of of you know of followers or whatever. Um, you know, also which also testifies to a person's uh, importance. And in this case, it's sun. It's you know now announcing the sun and Saturn together. Um, you know, uh, was it three planets and Pluto um, rising ahead, and then uh, Jupiter, Neptune, and for a few days the Moon following behind. Like that's quite the escort. Yeah, totally. It makes me think. Um, one of the like you know hundreds of speculative interpretations about what the birth chart of Jesus would have been if the story of the astrologers in the Gospel of Matthew, the Magi, was valid or true at all was Dieter Koch posted a or published a book like 10 years ago where he argued that it was a helical rising of Venus and that was what the star of Bethlehem was as his like speculative sort of interpretation of that. But seeing Venus rise in the eastern horizon right now. You can really see what a spectacular thing it was, just visually, and therefore why we associate Venus with like beauty and aesthetics and some of the things we associate it with. Um, yeah, yeah. When when Venus is bright, it's the brightest thing in the sky other than the sun. Why well, in the right? Moon. Yeah, so it's yeah, the brightest, brightest. Yeah, but, but the greatest of the non luminaries. So right. it outshines like all other stars in the night sky. So it's literally like the most beautiful star that it stands out and just like um, you're sort of awestruck by it. Yeah. This reminds yeah. me of a lot of the conversation you had with uh, Bacatanus on on Venus. Uh, you you guys really covered that uh, super well in your uh, planetary series. Yeah, that was right in the middle of the planetary series. That was a really good episode on Venus, and then I, I concluded the planetary series surprisingly this month with uh, Richard Tarnas in the episode on Pluto, which was a lot of fun. And um, you know, I got to mention Alan Alan White's classic line, which has always become one of my main lines about Pluto: that it makes big things small and small things big. And it was funny researching and doing work on the Pluto episode and just seeing how. Sometimes, literally, those themes of of that were constantly happening in the history of Pluto, even in terms of its discovery and like estimations of its size, where it was constantly being overestimated for much of the 20th century about how big it was, and then uh, and then even its classification, yeah, its status as a even as a, it was as a planet downgraded, itself. yeah, You're right. it was da downgraded. But now, recently, after the flyby mission, they found out that it was actually much more geologically interesting than they thought it was. And it may actually contain some of the components for life, which would be wild, which would then, you know, bump it up so that its estimation now might be going back the other direction in terms of becoming more important uh, recently to to astronomers. That's interesting. Yeah. So, and and speaking of this, we talked about this at length in the year ahead forecast. But I know Patrick, you wanted to mention that we have the first exact hit of the Pluto return this month, right? Right. On uh, February twenty second, that is the day of the exact uh, Pluto return of the Declaration of Independence. I say that specifically that it's the Pluto return of the Declaration of Independence because 
you know, it's sort of an open question still exactly which chart you should use for the start of the United States. And it's probably more of a ongoing process than like something incredible will happen on that day. Um, of course, we have already highlighted that the changing of the gods is going to be uh, um, uh, debuting on uh, on this day. But uh, oh, yeah, did we say that? I think that was before we started recording. Oh, that was before we started recording. Okay, well, that that's I think that's correct. So um, yeah, apparently the changing of the gods documentary is going to be dropped on this uh, on this day. And um, but I I say that it's the Declaration of Independence return rather than the U.S. return because. Everything past this point will be the Pluto return of everything that's happened in U.S. history up to this point. Um, so it's probably more helpful, you know, to think of this as, uh, you know, the, um, you know, the crucial point within the Pluto return to Capricorn that has been happening since 2008. You know, we've already been in a Pluto return of the sign for uh, uh, many years now. So uh, I'm not exactly expecting some kind of uh, spectacular event or something to, to manifest on that day. But I do think that this, uh, you know, signals, especially as we get into Pluto and Aquarius, that we'll definitely be revisiting fundamentally what um, the country is about in, in some respect. And I know that sounds incredibly vague, but I mean, it was during the Pluto and Aquarius period that you saw the, you know, um, ratification of the U.S. Constitution, um, the, uh, the establishment of the U.S. presidency. Uh, so it, it, you know, it's reasonable to assume that um, these things will be undergoing kind of um, radical reimaginings, you know, for uh, the 21st century. And, um, uh, uh, you know, this exact, you know, Pluto return of the Declaration of Independence, you know, a lot of people do look at that day as the uh, kind of inceptional moment for the United States. It's the signing of the divorce papers. I know I sound English, so you're probably wondering, like, well, what is this guy talking about? It's talking about America. You know, um, I am an American citizen for whatever it's worth. My mom's American and my father's English. So I uh, I just spend July 4th, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know, enjoying myself. I don't really, <laughs> it doesn't really matter to me. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's a little bit about uh, the Pluto return. One thing I do think that is sort of relevant um, is that there is kind of an overall pattern with like Pluto going through through the cardinal signs and things to do with the monetary system. So, for example, when Pluto um, was in Cancer, that was the establishment of the Federal Reserve, which is basically the United States Central Bank. And then it, Pluto in Libra, that was when um, the US dollar became uncoupled from the price of gold. And now that Pluto, when Pluto first entered the Capricorn, this was the 2008 financial crash. Um, and um, when the central bank, the Fed, uh, the Federal Reserve had to uh, undergo, um, you know, take extraordinary measures, extraordinary measures of, of uh, quantitative easing or essentially printing more money um, in order to uh, cover the short, um, uh, cover the liquidity uh, shortages. So, uh, we've seen now since the pandemic has hit that Saturn Pluto conjunction in Capricorn, we've seen that the Federal Reserve again had to take even more extraordinary measures uh, to uh, to prop up the financial system. So, uh, seeing how kind of shaky things are now, and knowing that the Federal Reserve is has uh, kind of um, 
used all of its tools already, and it doesn't necessarily have a whole lot more it can do uh, than it's already done to help prop up the uh, financial system. You know, one wonders if the recent shakiness in the market could be, you know, um, you know, uh, a symptom of a larger problem, uh, which might come about later in this year. Uh, do we really just wonder that? Sorry. <laughs> I well, I mean, I guess what you, I guess what I'm saying is, is I think that it potentially is reflective of, you know, the diminishing value of the dollar, um, you know, potentially with uh, bad consequences, especially with how um, how inflation has has uh, affected the price of the dollar and uh, the you know recent events in recent years have have caused uh, the U.S. dollar to be kind of reevaluated as a global reserve currency. So. I mean, I guess the most extreme version of what I'm saying is that you could say this signals the, um, you know, the beginning of the end, you know, of the hegemony of the U.S. dollar, and that there would need to be like a new replacement currency, say, for example, a Fed coin, or switching to a kind of um, uh, other currency like Bitcoin or something to sort of replace, uh, you know, federal the Federal Reserve's control over the U.S. dollar. Just one thing I'd like to add to that, uh, your research about, um, Pluto and cardinal signs, um, uh, corresponding to important financial changes for the U.S. It's, uh, in that declaration chart, Pluto's in the second natally. Hmm. In the Sibley chart. Sibley chart. That's correct. Yeah. The, like the U.S. has a, uh, in, we, you know, according to that chart, an inherently Plutonian relationship to money, which I think is, easy to validate. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. So I'm just pulling up the Sibley chart here where we have 12 degrees of Sag rising and Pluto at 2732 Capricorn. So that is the point that it's taken this long for Pluto to go around the entire zodiac and come back to where it started. And yeah, the question of whether some of that could be financially related, I mean, of course, People have to go back to the last episode, the year ahead forecast for our full Pluto discussion. Since we spent a lot of time on this, I talked about how, because it was tied in with the Declaration of Independence, it was also tied in with um, some of the things having to do with just America as a democracy and, and the experiment of America as a democracy, which I think is one of the challenges that is coming up during this time where both sides politically are saying that the democratic process has been undermined in some way. So clearly, that's uh, a major thing that's happening right now, and will be one of the major questions this year: is um, the extent to which that's going to be either fixed or, you know, crumble even worse for some reason. Um, one of the things I meant to mention last in the last episode, the year ahead forecast that I didn't. One of the charts that I noticed was getting hit by this, and I know Demetra George mentioned to me as as was she was interested in how it was getting hit, but also I think Lisa mentioned it to me was. Kamala Harris's chart, just because she has her, she was born at an exact full moon uh, with her moon at 27 degrees of Aries and her sun at 27 degrees of Libra. And so that, that Pluto return of the United States at 27 Capricorn is squaring both of her luminaries, which is a pretty challenging transit for somebody to have, um, just in terms of Pluto having to do with issues of like, you know, control and um, manipulation and, and other tendencies that can be really tough um, dealing with underworldly things and other things like that. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm paying attention to her chart this year and how that goes. She's not 
having a super great time recently and has been getting some bad press over the course of the past month or two, especially. Um, and yeah, but sometimes one of the things that Pluto can do is it can diminish a person's power and there can be sometimes downfalls, but also sometimes due to difficult or tragic events, sometimes there can be major increases in power at the same time. So that's one of the things that I want to pay attention to as well. Yeah, that that's a really um, should we say important and weird thread with big Pluto transits is I see people being like um uh crazy empowered and then also having all of their power taken away. That Plutonian that um you know Pluto has a real uh penchant for extremes, right? Though like the huge and the tiny um, the all powerful and the utterly powerless. Yeah, it doesn't do in betweens. <laughs> yeah, well, it's yeah, it seems to try to like sort out from the middles, right? It's like let's take that and blow it up, and let's take that and shrink it. Um, and it, you know, it's something I've thought a lot about because, you know, when you're looking for yourself uh, or a client or whoever, you're looking at a big upcoming Pluto transit and trying to figure out what it's going to do. Um, because I find it more difficult to predict exactly what kind of Plutonian action they'll get from a transit than any other planet, probably. Yeah. Like, it's like, I can tell you the four things Pluto does, it's definitely going to do one of these, right? And maybe all four, but it's, it's, um, it's difficult, I think, to, to sort ahead of time. Yeah, because one of the things is it it really intensifies whatever planets it's touching if it's touching other planets and just empowers them to take their energy to the utmost extreme. Um, but also one of the things that's one of the things I really got from the Changing of the Gods documentary. Not to I'm not really plugging it. Uh, I am interviewing the director next week, so I've been watching this series. And there was two episodes in particular, episodes four and five, because it's a ten part. It, it went from a single. Like documentary movie to ten part series over the past five to six years, they've been working on it. But um, one of the things I really got from those two episodes were power disparities and how Pluto really has to do with power disparities when they exist, and that sometimes when power power disparities do exist, the tendency for them to be um, abused in different ways as like a major theme. And if you follow that as like a core meaning, then you see it showing up um, in all sorts of different. Uh, situations where there's power disparities in society, for example, in terms of um, uh, sex and sexuality or just gender issues like um, the women's rights and some of the things that happened in terms of that in the 1960s, as well as further back um, under the Pluto Uranus alignments, but also um, civil rights and like what happens when there's like groups that are being oppressed in society due to power disparities. And the struggle to realign or readjust to those power disparities in different ways, I thought was really interesting as a theme. Yeah, that Pluto's power to like negate people is really um, uh, is uh, 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 a huge theme, right? To negate the humanity of you know X or Y group, um, and also to. Tim, one another thing I see about train is it'll just sometimes it'll negate a planet that it touches. Like it's like that part of the person's like psyche or life just turns off for a while, you know. And that's that's where some of the oh, you know, um, the in the underworld, right? Like disappeared from the from the sunlight realm and then reappearing later. 
you know, and that's for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes it's like a depression or a transformation, but there's a there's like a, a negation and um, a disappearance followed by a later um, changed reemergence. Totally. Uh, but yeah, dark night of the soul can be a major thing in Pluto transits. So that'll be really interesting to see both in terms of, of the country going through a dark night of the soul period for a little bit here and individuals that have you know, personal planets around 27 degrees um, getting hit by that as well, such as the chart we were just talking about. So this just made me remember like two major things that we meant to mention that we are about to skip and not. One of them, both of them were actually ones that we have to harken back to from the year ahead forecast we recorded in early to mid-December that went really well in terms of some of our statements. Like one of them was mine personally, which is I was wondering idly last month as Jupiter was finishing up in Aquarius, it had been so good for Bitcoin when Jupiter was in Aquarius starting in like December of 2020. And then it dipped, and there was this interesting um, dip in Bitcoin over last summer when Jupiter went into Pisces briefly. And so my curiosity that I stated, I think in the year ahead forecast in one of the other episodes, maybe the one I did with Adam Summer last early last month, was when Jupiter goes back into Pisces in December, as it did a few weeks ago, is the price of Bitcoin going to tank again like it did when it dipped in over the summer? And it turns out that the answer is yes. So the price of Bitcoin has been like dropping pretty steadily since hitting, I guess, a high in November. And then Jupiter went into Pisces and it's just been dropping. So I am not a financial astrologer or a big Bitcoin guy, but I've just been dipping my toe into paying attention to stuff like that over the past year or so. And it's just fascinating to sometimes see some of these planetary cycles and be able to put them up against. You know, objective like graphs and things to like see the trends and have some sort of objective way to look at the astrology that's not just, you know, the, the more subjective, like internal, like how am I feeling or what's going on in my life at different times like that. Yeah. One of the things that was really interesting about that Jupiter ingress into Pisces in May of uh, 2021 was the fact that a lot of people who follow Bitcoin astrologically were expecting there to be. A really big increase in its price because they figured, oh, Jupiter is like a benefic. It's about wealth. It's going into its own sign. Uh, the Venus position in the needle chart that most people use for Bitcoin is at like zero degrees or one degree of Pisces. So people were seeing, okay, we have a very good-looking Jupiter making a conjunction to a very, you know, to an exalted Venus in the Bitcoin chart. This should be great. And it entered and it went down. It was almost the exact opposite of what people expected. And the only person who correctly identified that it would go down was, uh, I don't know if he necessarily wants me to mention it, but Dr. Rage of uh, Regulus Astrology. He um, uh, he had indicated to me in conversations that he, um, he has witnessed in past uh, cycles that Jupiter is in Pisces tends to be really bad for markets in general. And the reason is because Pisces is the fallen sign of Mercury, and Mercury is the planet most relevant for trading um, and uh, the um, accumulation or, or clever concentration of wealth, whereas Jupiter is about expenditures and and uh, you know giving things away or spreading wealth out as opposed to consolidating it. And so markets only go up when wealth is being kept, but not when it's <laughs> being... Uh, you know, distributed. So 
I thought that was a very interesting and sort of theoretically consistent um, or coherent sort of rationale for why Jupiter and Pisces would actually be bad for markets. Um, and uh, it seems to be borne out by, you know, what's been happening uh, with the general market as well as with uh, with Bitcoin. I know that a lot of people also remarked that at the exact time of the last solar eclipse in Sagittarius, that also seemed to signal a very precipitous decline in the value of uh, crypto. So there seemed to be some very strange things going on. I've only dipped my toe in toes into financial astrology for the past couple of years or so. Um, and there's so there's definitely some uh, <laughs> interesting ways in which you have to kind of reconceptualize the way you typically understand um, things in a natal context. But uh, there definitely seem to be some really curious correlations that suggest that this is something that could be understood and could be, um, you know, forecast more precisely. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, any thoughts on that before we move on, Austin? Oh, um, I think those, those are some really interesting thoughts about Jupiter and Jupiter and Pisces. Um, I would say I, I do disagree. I would disagree that um, Jupiter is only about spreading out wealth. Um, it's also the um, I would argue the long-term accumulation of wealth and things that have value. Um, and I think every text ever supports that, but that is not necessarily it, you know, in, in a financially, that's almost like looking at the savings rate, um, which is um, not good for markets at all. Um, markets do well when people are trading constantly. Um, and you know, uh, as uh, Kate points out in the comments, Jupiter being exalted in, in Cancer shows that its thing that it's very best at is gathering everything and keeping it. Um, you know, that accumulative power of, of the Moon with Jupiter is is really good. And it's not that Jupiter won't splash out, um, <clears throat> but I, I, I see Jupiter in terms of like l literally twelve-year cycle wealth planning, whereas Mercury is like, is this a good deal right now? And the more of those interactions you have, um, the you know the uh, the more a market goes up. Of course, the other way to look at that really positive uh, Jupiter conjunction to the Venus of the natal Bitcoin chart is that you know that is when people sold. That's when people were able to cash out their their earnings. I'm not sure. I'm not so sure that you can. Right, like I, I want to stop trading now. <laughs> you know, I'm going to take my I'm going to take my money. I mean, yeah, the, a lot of people made a lot of money as they sold, right? Um, so uh, it made the line go down. It's tricky because basically we have like many, many variables that that only show up as a line going up, down, or or you know staying constant. So it's hard to identify. It's hard to always you know perfectly link what astrological variable is in play for what direction that line goes in. You know there there are different reasons the line can go up or down. So it's. Uh, it's tricky, but I, I think you know, with uh, <laughs> maybe with artificial intelligence, uh, you know, uh, we'll be able to kind of crack what what's sort of corresponding to what. We've also got a lot of Jupiter and Pisces left. We'll see whether that's the case with Bitcoin or not. Yes, definitely, for sure, for sure. Um, interesting bit of Jupiter and Aquarius slash Pisces news that I noticed at the end of December was that there was a huge spike in sales of virtual reality headsets over the holidays. And after everybody received them as gifts for Christmas, basically, suddenly VR apps like the Oculus app started trending and hit the number one app downloaded app in Apple's App Store, 
which I thought was a really wild thing seeing the changeover at the end of December from Jupiter going from Pisces from Aquarius going into Pisces where we're of course going to get that Jupiter Neptune conjunction in April and not to go on another like 30 minute tangent about Avatar that we we talked about for a very long time in the last episode but I know Patrick you you pointed out something very interesting to me about Avatar and its sequel uh, that you wanted to mention that you mentioned to me that I thought was interesting. Uh, basically, just has to do with the elements of that Jupiter and Neptune are conjunct in. So, back in two thousand nine, at the release of the first Avatar movie, Jupiter was conjunct Neptune in Aquarius, and uh, Aquarius is an air sign. And so, when you watch the first Avatar movie, you'll notice that there are many stunning scenes of flight. Uh, where you see the main characters flying through the air on these kind of raptor alien things. And there are also scenes of flight through uh, these places where the the mountains are floating that were kind of based on the the floating Chinese mountains in uh, China. And uh, so there's a lot of of imagery in the movie that circulates around this notion of flying through the air and the air. And of course, yeah, Aquarius and air sign. So this is really interesting because, you know, Jupiter's conjunct Neptune in Pisces, a water sign, with the release of Avatar 2. Uh, the subtitle, rumored subtitle for Avatar 2 is The Way of Water. And uh, the film has is set underwater, basically. Uh, the actors actually had to learn how to hold their breath underwater for minutes at a time in order to f- do all of the filming needed for this film. So it's all set underwater and all themed around water and oceans. And so it's very appropriate that the Jupiter-Neptune conjunction is happening in um, Pisces. It's also worth noting that you know Jupiter-Neptune conjunctions in general have this like long connection to uh, to cinema, and the Jupiter-Neptune prior to Avatar coming out was in Capricorn, and that was basically like right before um, Titanic came out, which was James Cameron's other you know uh, huge <laughs> blockbuster movie. And um, if you think of the sign of Capricorn. Uh, you know, it's a sea goat. You know, it's based on that Babylonian or Sumerian god Enki. You know, who is sort of uh, lord of the earth and the sea. And there's a few myths surrounding Enki that have to do with boats uh, being attacked by the waters below, which is kind of interesting. That yeah, the Jupiter-Neptune conjunction happens in Capricorn, and the big cinematic spectacle of that time is you know a boat that sinks. Um, uh, there might be a lot more there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but good point. Very interesting how, sometimes how literal things are in terms of the two Avatar things, and we'll see what happens with the sequel when it's released in December later this year. Um, but we mention it because this is relevant, because Jupiter is just inching closer and closer and is rapidly approaching that exact conjunction with Pisces as we go through February, uh, and then it'll go exact in early April. So it's good to be aware of some of the archetypes going on right now and to start paying attention to how it starts manifesting in the world around us in between now and then. I would also say just a very short note too, that you might also want to keep track of what's happening in the MCU at that time, because under that same Jupiter-Neptune conjunction in Aquarius, that was when Disney bought Marvel. And the different Marvel phases that they've, you know, the you know how Marvel planned out its slate of movies in phases. They all occur at Jupiter Neptune hard aspects. So phase one, and in 2012, the first Jupiter Neptune square, um, Captain America Civil War, um, beginning of phase or end of phase two, that was the Jupiter Neptune opposition in 2016, and then Avengers Endgame came out of the Jupiter Neptune closing square in 2019, 
And now we're back at the Jupiter-Neptune conjunction, which will be occurring in March or April to 2022. So I am assuming that we'll hear some sort of news about a new acquisition by Disney or something cool happening uh, with uh, the Marvel shows or the MCU will be kind of the next big step for uh, these uh, franchises. So it'll be like the final hurrah too, because this is the final Jupiter-Neptune conjunction we have before you know, the depressing uh, 2025 Saturn-Neptune conjunction comes in to kind of end the party for uh, this uh, whole mode of entertainment. Yeah, that's a good point. It's good research. All right, so Tuesday, February 8th, I'm bringing things back locally, locally to the astrology of February. We got a Mars-Uranus trine, which like that Mars-Jupiter sextile seems productive, innovative, getting some stuff done, finding new ways to do it. Any other quick keywords, Austin? Yeah, making the making those changes that you know you need to make. Right, Uranus is sometimes just, oh, I know I need to make some changes in that area of my life, and that Mars trine is a great time to make those changes. Yeah, uh, quick keywords, Patrick. Mars trine Uranus. Uh, I guess spontaneous action. Um, you know, uh, sort of taking the opportunity to get things done if you didn't plan on getting them done, just being prepared to kind of having to spring into into action. I wouldn't say it's necessarily a bad kind of thing, given that it's a trine, but yeah, those are some of the ideas popping to mind. That's good. All right. Then we got the Mercury-Pluto on Friday the 11th, which we've talked about extensively. Moving into the following week, we have the Mercury ingress into Aquarius on Valentine's Day that we talked about. And this is a very interesting Valentine's Day because the Mars uh, Venus conjunction is super close by that point. It doesn't perfect until Wednesday the 16th, which is also the day of the full moon in Leo, uh, which is interesting. And that's what I want to pull up next. But even once we get to Valentine's Day on the 14th, Mars and Ju- Mars and Venus, I think are they're within a degree, and I think they're in the same degree, which is like 16 or something. So that is a very passionate looking aspect or configuration for Valentine's Day. Let me pull that up so we can look at actual chart placements for that day. There Memes it is. Memes about the- being horny on Maine. <laughs> That's the meme prediction for the moon. That's the uh, meme? Okay. Well, because it's happening at the same time as a Venus-Mars conjunction. I mean, it's not exactly configured with it, but you know, you could... I mean, in general, this is a really interesting full moon as well because it's so it's square the nodes, and that means it's square the nodes on the northern bending, right? So this is a moon. This is a full moon when it's at its brightest phase, and at its northernmost latitude of the sun. So it's brightest and highest above the sun. Um, so uh, that would tell us that this is like the sentiment is high, and and emotional reactivity is sort of at a, a kind of height, and. Um, Kind of taking a little bit back to some of the Russia discussion, I, I'm kind of a little concerned about this particular full moon for this topic because it just seems like this is a time when people would be um, kind of riled up to uh, to to act or to or to react badly or uh, you know we just know that this moon at this sort of heightened kind of state would reflect uh, people maybe making sort of rash. Uh, decisions or being at a kind of height of um, impetus to do something. Yeah, a culmination of events. And this is also the day that Mars overtakes Venus. And as I've been thinking about that interchange between Mars and Venus more, one of the simplest, and I can't believe 
I don't bring it up more often. It, it's not as often in world events that you get an occasion to bring it up. But one of the primary interplays between Mars and Venus has always been themes of war and peace. You know, most simply, at its most simple, Venus and Mars and war and peace, and seeing the interchange of those two this month. And at first, Mars in the middle of the month giving the upper hand over Venus and the potential impulse for war, perhaps, um, you know, being the one that wins out versus by early in the following month, by later February and early March, the Venus impulse sort of overcoming Mars and perhaps the peace impulse or the, the peacekeeping impulse uh, calming things down, hopefully. So maybe only in that in between period between those two conjunctions would there actually be. Sort of more of a potential for sort of armed conflicts happening. I hope so. I mean, I'm not again like with the Bitcoin stuff. I'm not a war expert on like military astrology, like Theophilus of Edessa or something from the eighth century. But it's interesting seeing some of these themes play out in real time, and that's what we're always constantly doing. That's part of the purpose of these deep dive forecast episodes over the past six, seven years now is watching world events, documenting what's happening at the time, learning things from the symbolism as we see it happen, just like our you know, Mesopotamian ancestors did two, three thousand years ago in astrology of like seeing a correlation in the sky and writing down on little clay tablets what happened and if the king died or whatever. So, and trying to call things ahead of time. That was the sorry, we're, we're already moving on. And I forgot there was one last thing we needed to mention. We needed to do a bit of a victory lap about Austin, which is we were nervous. And if you go back and watch the year ahead forecast for 2021, the month we were the most nervous about because of the the combinations that month month was November, and specifically that Mars Saturn square that was happening in between Mars going through Scorpio and squaring Saturn, and we caught this on one of our final couple of episodes of the December forecast, and then especially the year ahead forecast we mentioned again in passing, but we had seen that there was a new. Variant that had just been identified in mid-November around the time of that Mars-Saturn square, and that turned out to be the Omicron variant, which suddenly just exploded, and the numbers of COVID around the world just skyrocketed over the course of the past few weeks, um, potentially higher than at any other time in the pandemic, because it turned out to be a highly transmissible form of COVID, and there were just you know, on on the Twitter timeline, I was just seeing like astrologers left and right getting sick with COVID, who had who had dodged it for the entire pandemic, and it's been a pretty wild month, month and a half since our last episode. So that's actually something I can't believe we forgot to mention up to this point, because it's really you know dominated the the news and the headlines in many people's lives very recently. Yeah, yeah, um, and it yeah, I mean November November's um, had a number of. Almost hilariously terrible things, and um, like which I think we talked about this a little bit, maybe on the yearly or for December. But there's also that like gnarly gnarly configurations will often create a bad at the time, but they will also set things in motion that won't become clear until they've they run a bit of that track, like the the Omicron variant being one of those. So yeah, I'll take well, I'll take that win with you. Good job, guys. Yeah, I mean, just people can go back and look at that in terms of our our trepidation. But yeah, that's one of those tricky principles when it comes to electional charts and stuff. Is just you're you're creating a foundation for something, and sometimes if it's a a day of event, you're trying to get it to go well in terms of the event that day. Like let's say it's a marriage or something, and the ceremony going well. 
But what you're doing when you pick a birth chart for something at the time is you're laying the seeds for how that thing is going to grow and develop in the future. And in some of these instances with these things, we're talking about the seeds of something being laid at the time that will become major in the future. But it's like a it's like a growth process by looking at the the origins of it. So yeah, that has been tricky. Um, and I guess the numbers are starting to go down in the UK, and now I think it's starting to take a turn here in the US uh, with the numbers starting to drop, but we're still very close to the peak of it, but hopefully that will continue to drop. That does, however, now make me nervous about the upcoming Mars-Saturn conjunction, which is going to take place in Aquarius, because that was kind of what we started this entire two-year cycle with You know, back in 2020, was first the Mars-Saturn co-presence um, in Capricorn, and all of the lockdowns starting to take place all across the West, at least. But then, right in the middle of the early part of the lockdowns, was that Mars Saturn conjunction in Aquarius. Um, and I know that was when when I got sick with COVID and was sick for like a month. And a lot of people were sick or dealing with the lockdowns or what have you. And so, in some ways, we're going to be seeing a closing down of that two-year cycle, and hopefully. You know, putting some end to it in terms of just this nightmare of the past two years of dealing with COVID and all the changes and annoyances and other things that's made in the world around us, but then also the start of the foundation of a new cycle of whatever the next two, two and a half years is going to look like. And we have seen now in the very past two Mars-Saturn alignments, two variants happen. So one of them was last summer when the Delta variant happened. Around the time of the Mars-Saturn opposition, and, and then got really big, and then most recently we had the Omicron variant begin around the time of the Mars-Saturn square. So that makes me a little bit nervous because we're going to be having the Jupiter and Neptune conjunction at the same time in early April. So it's one of those times again where it's like, oh, you know, everything's good again, but then there's something ending and something starting at that time that could end up being difficult in the long term. Yeah, you know, it's funny we haven't we haven't talked about, it, but I've been. Um, literally uh, thinking pretty much the same thing in terms of, so this is the closing out of a cycle and the beginning of a new cycle. Does the next one look like the last one? <clears throat> and I, I don't think I have a great answer yet, um, but that, you know, it's for, you know, the Mars-Saturn conjunctions are like a new moon for horror. Right, <laughs> cycle. <laughs> there, there. It's the new moon for the cycle of doom that's going at the same time as um, happier cycles, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and it's so funny because somebody I saw a tweet where somebody in passing was just like, "Covid is has become what we all feared that Ebola was going to be back in like 2013." And what's funny about that is like one of the major Ebola outbreaks back then was at a Mars Saturn conjunction in Scorpio. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, but are the that's a good question, Austin. Are the you know ingredients the same compared to where they were two years ago? I mean, one of the major differences is now Saturn is twenty degrees off of Pluto, and they're in separate signs. So we're outside of even like you know the fifteen degree range, for example, that Richard Tarnas uses for outer planet conjunctions. And I don't think it's going to come back within that 15 degree range. So maybe that's one sort of positive thing that we can say in terms of the start of this new Mars Saturn cycle is at least it's not going to be tied in with the conjunction with Saturn and Pluto like the last one was, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
I think it would only continue along the same vein for as long as Saturn's in Aquarius, since that seems to be the what's promoting the idea of bad airs, you know. Uh, right, but Saturn's going to be bad in the air. I mean, it's it's if it seeds it while Saturn's in Aquarius, that's another you know that's another two right. and a half years that's of a, bad. This luck. will be a great case study, I guess. <laughs> See in real time, you know, uh, you know, is this the closure or is this just you know another block of it? Yeah, there's something that looks very optimistic during that time in early April because we're probably coming down off of this current wave and we're probably clear of it by then, I assume, of the Omicron variant and have it under control. And so we have this very optimistic looking Jupiter Saturn conjunction going exact, but or, or Jupiter Neptune conjunction. But with that Neptune, it's just like there's something distracting about it or something illusory about it. It's Pleasure Island. Or, you know. you know, it's really like like um, Patrick was saying, yeah, it's movies you really enjoy that doesn't necessarily help with, you know, other problems. I you Stay know, I home know. and watch Disney Plus, you know, <laughs> Don't, but otherwise, you know, be wary. Yeah, so we'll have to pay attention to it just because it's starting something new with that Saturn-Pluto cycle at the same time. And I don't know, I hope it's not another stupid third variant or, or something like that, but yeah. we'll we'll see. Getting 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 pretty tiresome. Yeah, getting, <laughs> that's also March or April. <laughs> We're on February, right? Um, yeah. So over over, over yeah, it. So, okay. So February. What happens in February? February. Back to February. Um, so Patrick, you mentioned the nodes, and I think that's really important because the nodes change signs since we did the last episode in mid January, and a lot of people talked about that. There was a little bit of a true node versus mean node discussion, but for me. The uh, you know the difference between the true node and the mean node has always been pretty clear. I mean, we have the true node, uh, as we can see here in this diagram, versus the mean node, which has a very uh, distinctive sort of appearance in terms of its furled brow and deep piercing eyes. With the mean node, it's just he's kind of grumpy, and I think that's one might the main, say mean, main, <laughs> right? I mean, that's the ancient translation, I think, of the Greek or the Persian term, but. Uh, what what do you guys use? Do you use true node or mean node? I, I'm a true node person, but I don't have a strong feeling. But it usually seems to line up better with true node personally. Um, I'm a mean node person, but I'm equally non-emphatic. Like the um, yeah. for me, I used mean because the Vedic tradition I um, uh, I've learned in uses mean. They're super good at notes, so I'm just gonna you know cede to the authority there. But I you know I would I would. Uh, not be upset or care in any way if someone used the the true note instead. Right. Neither of us is going to like strap a bomb to our chest in order to like make this this case. Yeah, not not going to go full truther about that. <laughs> okay. I've always I've always used true note, but I I have become warmer to the mean node because it matches the way that we calculate the longitude of other planets because you know the the true node is taking into account the barycenter, the center of gravity between the uh, Earth and the Moon. So whereas the mean node is just assuming that the Moon travels around the exact center of the Earth, and that's the way that we calculate the positions of the other planets. Now, if you were to take into account the barycenter, you know, of the other planets, so then it probably wouldn't change it by any much, any, uh, by by any great amount. And even with the Moon, you can see the differences you know, basically negligible. It's between, you know, zero to two degrees. So 
usually doesn't make much of a difference most of the time, mostly just around the sign boundaries or if you're investigating like the exact degree rulerships of the North Node and South Node. But um, so I, I've become warmer to the conceptual basis of the mean node as being uh, more legitimate. Um, but uh, I've always used true node and I, I similarly hold a, a very non-committal, uh, easygoing <laughs> stance about it. I, I don't feel very extremely about it either way. Yeah. So I wanted to mention that just because this lunation, this full moon at 28 Leo is so closely square the nodes that means we're at the halfway point between one set of eclipses and before the next set of eclipses. And it means we're headed headlong into three months later, the next set of fully fixed sign eclipses where we're going to get our second uh, eclipse in Taurus of the series, and we're going to get our first eclipse in Scorpio. So there's really this emphasis that's moving towards and is going to push us towards in February towards the fixed signs and the activation of the fixed sign axis in basically everybody's chart. And that's only going to be accelerated, um, you know, as we get Mercury going back into Aquarius. We get Saturn is now treading new ground between what is it, 13 Aquarius to about 24, 25 Aquarius uh, that it hasn't gotten to before in terms of the fixed signs. And this Leo eclipse is really um, important or important turning point in terms of that, in terms of continuing to heighten the focus on the fixed signs in different charts. Yep. Yeah, always important to remember which end of the nodes you're talking about. The the um the, remember this is the northernmost uh point of the moon's path. So it's the it's where the moon this is a full moon that is highest above the eclipse uh, above the um highest above the sun, highest yeah, most, most north of the sun. Way. Yeah. Yeah. So otherwise it's like this is not configured very closely to anything. I think the closest aspect is just the um, opposition with Saturn that's moving away about 10 degrees apart in terms of that full moon of both luminaries moving off of the either conjunction or opposition with Saturn, and then the simultaneous conjunction of Mars and, and Venus that's happening that day, and perhaps the Mars impulse of acting, sort of getting the upper hand and moving forward or doing something decisive happening at that time when things sort of come to a culmination and, it, and you feel like an action needs to take place. And for some people, that might be a constructive action, and, and that may be necessary. And for others, they may find they've acted too impulsively or, or do something that they regret that they later have to revisit uh, later in the month or early in the following month when Venus again conjoins Mars. So that is the full moon. Let's move into the final phase of this. There's a little outer planet alignment that occurs the very next day, which is Jupiter sextiling Uranus, which is, again, a pretty nice little productive, constructive growth-oriented and innovation-type aspect. It's not a huge major thing to write home about, but nonetheless still seems a little nice uh, feature of, of February. Yeah, it's just like a little help um, either making useful Uranian changes or um, a little help managing Uranian chaos. Mm, right. I would think if we if we see Uranus and Taurus as generally representing volatility in uh, financial markets, we might see Jupiter sextiling Uranus as being uh, a time of uh, 
great as greatest stability. Yeah, um, like just a little, not, just a little, <laughs> not fixing it, but just like yeah. little, little, little hands on the wheel. Right. Yeah. Little reassurance. Yeah. My my keyword for that on Thursday the seventeenth is an unexpected opportunity. So that is Thursday the seventeenth. Then the sun moves into Pisces, and all of our Pisces friends rejoice on Friday the eighteenth. We could have the beginning of Pisces season, and uh, some of our friends have start having birthdays not long after that. I don't name any names, but I might be getting them a pendant or something for their birthday. We'll see. Or a mug. They they or might be auspicious. <laughs> yeah, people. auspicious. AA. My 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 slow return this year, by the way, is truly auspicious. We will talk about it next month because it's in March. Okay, it's nice. I haven't had a good one in years. Yeah, that's always a good feeling to like look ahead and not like groan when you look at your solar return chart. Yeah. Um. All right. So moving into Wednesday or moving the the final week, we've got Wednesday, the twenty third of February. There's a sorry, just one thing. So and the sun moving into Pisces um, is a huge change because it's we're going from the sun hanging out in a Saturn ruled sign with Saturn to the sun hanging out in a Jupiter ruled sign with Jupiter right there. Yes. Like that's um that's um much more positive, much more maybe everything is okay. Maybe it's even maybe Mardi it's Gras even will be great. popping. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it's okay to go out, go outside again. Yeah, it's uh they're, they're just very um very big um very big tone change. Yeah, lightning lightning the mood. I think that's a good keyword for February 18th ingress of the sun into Pisces is Getting out of the uh, more restrictive, somewhat pessimistic um, side of the Sun Saturn conjunction that we've been having for most of the previous month and moving into the more optimistic, growth oriented uh, Sun Jupiter conjunction that then builds up over the course of the next 10 to 11 days. I like, uh, I like buoyant for mm, buoyant. Jupiter, especially Jupiter and Pisces. That's a good one. I predict people will be especially bad at Lent this year. Um, they'll be bad at maintaining their promises uh, or their sacrifices, right? Because you know the, the sun is uh, conjoining Jupiter and Neptune. It just looks far more indulgent than uh, you might otherwise expect. And it's always Lent, you know, while the sun's in Pisces. Jupiter is good for for religious uh, for for faith and spirituality, though. Maybe Lent will be super meaningful to more people, and they'll also do a worse job at it. But it's also kind of it's also that kind of bacchanalian uh, type of uh, quality, though, too. Especially with Neptune in the mix, it just looks like you know the um, uh, gravitation towards the the things that will sort of ease the pain or suffering or ease the uh, you know longing for what you want. F- fentanyl in the Eucharist, <laughs> just. Oh Lord, um, yeah, alcohol, Sorry. real alcohol in the wine. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, uh, I don't know how many Catholics watch this. <laughs> Doubt many, but um, as a former Catholic, uh, yeah, I, I sort of noticed. I, these I things. mean, I honestly mean no disrespect. I was just making jokes. <laughs> yeah. I- Speaking of alcohol in the wine, uh, we have a Mars. Neptune sextile, which goes exact on the twenty third, followed very quickly by a pleasant little Venus-Neptune sextile, which goes exact the next day on February 24th. So um, again, these are like minor, somewhat minor aspects. The sextile is always traditionally treated as a weak aspect. It's not like a hard aspect that like does things, but there can still be 
a moderately sort of positive vibe of um, things being relatively okay during that time when you have certain transits like that. What are some of our keywords for Mars sextile Neptune or Venus sextile Neptune? Well, I like um, I like Neptune's ability with a, a I like Neptune's ability to just mellow things a bit by sextile. Mm. Yeah. Right. The the you know the mellowing can become like a full a full on uh, dissolution if you have too much Neptune energy, but just by sextile just kind of mellows out that Mars Venus, which at this point we're probably getting a little tired of its um, passionate intensity. Yeah, it's been pretty passionate all the way up until this point in the month, and it could be nice to have a little bit of like Neptune and chill by February 23rd, 24th uh, to take the edge off of things. Looks like a good day to play like a big video game or something, you know, something with a lot of just mindless like fighting bad guys, <laughs> you know, with Mars, Sextile, Neptune. I, yeah, this what I'd imagine is like, I don't know, like putting God of War on or something. Yeah, it's it's like um, by sextile instead of you know the full on opiate or psychedelic level of Neptune. It's like um, Neptune cracks in half an anti anxiety pill for Mars and Venus to split. There you Just go. To take the edge off. <laughs> I was going to yeah, say that the, the, gla- yeah. the single glass of wine or the you know couple of puffs of reefer to take the edge off of um, the Mars Venus interaction and the intensity of the dynamic and the pull between those two. Uh, in wanting to take things in two different directions. Yeah, so that honestly is our last major aspect of the month. What's weird is like we're building up to this uh, interesting little, what I've been calling like the conjunctional climax of 2022, but it doesn't go exact until the very beginning of next month. But you can see it forming here with um, the Sun approaching that conjunction with Jupiter in Pisces. Mercury approaching a conjunction with Saturn in Aquarius, and then the Venus, the second um, Venus Mars conjunction, but it, there's a triple conjunction that happens at like 27 Capricorn with Venus, Mars, and Pluto. So it's this very interesting configuration that we saw when we were picking out electional charts for the year ahead, um, just because all three of those triple sets of conjunctions go exact very close to each other around the time of the new moon in Pisces. Next month, uh, around March second, so that's going to feature heavily in our next forecast. We don't have to dwell on it too much, but it's something to mention just because we're heading into it very rapidly by the time we get to the end of February. Extreme desires, extreme passions. One thing I would add is that um, starting with the Sun's ingress into Pisces, we enter um, about a two-week period. Of relative chill, because um, I, I believe it's March the sixth. Both Mars and Venus enter. Um, <clears throat> at most both Mars and Venus enter Aquarius, and then we have Mars Saturn co-presence again with Venus, and that's really difficult on Venus. And Mars Saturn is just rough in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but puts puts the brakes brakes on things. Sorry. It puts the slams the brakes on. Yeah, it definitely. There's some mellow that it harshes, um, and so it's not that you know all is all is perfect um, from let's say the February nineteenth to March fifth. But it's like as far as this year has gone so far, it's a period of relative chill. Yeah, yeah, I like that. 
That's a good point. Um, so there's a definite momentum shift that happens by early March. Um, but we're heading into that here and and seeing that Pisces ingress of the sun on the 18th and 19th. That's sort of when we start heading in that direction, I think, is, is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and then, yeah, the Pluto return happens on the 22nd. We've already talked about that at length, and that kind of brings us to the end of the month, guys. I think it does. All right. We made it. Brilliant. Well, that is the astrology of February. Um, cool. What do you two have coming up this month, or what are you, what are you up to in, in February? Okay. Well, I will finally have my uh, enrollment will be open for my self-paced year one astrology class that opens um, at a rising sign of my choosing on February 17th. Um, I know that's the day I got to I gotta figure out which of a rising I want, um, but I've been working on that for a while. I'm really excited. That's about to um, go. It's self-paced and um, I'll be doing some um, some live session support, and I also have several members of uh, several several graduates of my three year program who will also be helping out. So you will get to talk to people about the material that aren't just me, um, because you're going to be listening to a lot of videos with just me talking. Um, so I'm excited about that. And then, other than that, back to work on faces and um, sphere and sundry is has a big Venus launch coming up. Uh, unspecified, but early Feb. It's right around the corner. It's a super good election from Venus and Libra last year. Um, I'm very excited about it. I've been using it. It smells good. It feels good. <laughs> nice. That's exciting. It also looks good. Yeah. Some of the promo photos are just incredible every time. I recommend people sign up for the Sphere and Sundry Instagram feed because that always seems like the best way to see some of the Behind the scenes working and the the beautiful images of just the stuff that's being crafted. I just want to take one second to say, um, Kate is like has no training whatsoever in photography. She just started doing pictures one day, and there it, it's um, it's extraordinary. She has lots of talents that she's worked hard to develop, but uh, it was just, I think it was really around the beginning of Sphere and Sundry. It was like, wow, you're you make everything look so good. It was a fun yeah. discovery. Anyway, so love you, baby. It is as if Libras have an innate aesthetic sense or something. Yeah, this one does. <laughs> this one, not all, not all of them. You're saying, uh, yeah, just beautiful. It's nice. I love seeing that stuff. All right, um, Patrick, what do you got going on? Well, uh, I'm I my schedule is full of of clients. Um, very grateful to to be uh, that busy, but I also um, it's also a little tricky right now because I'm in the middle of uh, packing up and moving, and so that's why I have some sexy gray drapes hanging behind me uh, instead of my bookshelf. And uh, I also uh, selected February seventeenth as the day that I'm actually listing uh, my house with a rising sign yet to be determined because there's a few I can't figure out which one is I have I have to take one I have to take a drawback there's one there's better I mean there's like a few good ones but like don't, don't give away the good rising signs but like but I you know I I risk having like the malefic in the eighth or like the ruler of the second not potentially being as good so I've been trying to figure out which one would be worse for me as the seller but. Um, in any case, uh, so I'm busy with that, but astrology wise, I am still 
really focused on on getting the rectification course completed that I've been working on uh, with Chris. And uh, I think um, eventually, at some point, I'll probably I'll probably end up just flying out there and and uh, doing it in person with you. Um, because uh, it's just a little too chaotic right now when I'll be in between uh, houses. But that is definitely, you know, number one priority, um, you know, aside from the clients who've already scheduled with me. So, um, yeah, I've just been hitting it hard with general consultations, rectifications, elections, horary, and tutoring uh, uh, services that I I offer. And uh, I'm at some point going to get back into doing more regular blogs and videos um, but, uh, yeah, I'm a long way away from it right now. Brilliant. All right. So your website is patrickwatsonastrologer.com. Uh, patrickwatsonastrology.com. Astrology.com. Okay. If you go to the other one, does it go to like a, some shadow Patrick Watson? Someone took my domain and- Oh my God. I, there's like an evil Patrick Watson astrologer. <laughs> and then there's the, the even worse one, which is uh, patrickwatsonastrologist.com. <laughs> oh God. We, we don't talk about that guy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So it's patrickwasanastrology.com. Okay, good. Got it. Uh, Austin, your website is austincopic.com and mm-hmm. spheerandsundry.com. Want to make sure those get mentioned. As for me, I'm going to mainly be focusing on the podcast. I'm interviewing the director of the Changing of the Gods astrology documentary next week, and I'll release that as an episode sometime in February. And I've got other episodes I'm lining up a major episode on transits I've got in the works, a major episode. On uh, actually, funny enough, the astrology versus astrologist debate. And I'm also getting ready to launch a new series on a deep dive on each of the signs of the zodiac. Now that I've fin- finished my series on each of the planets, it's time to look at the signs of the zodiac and talk about those with one episode with a prominent astrologer on each of the 12 signs. So uh, if people are interested in that work, if you want to get early access to that work, if you'd like to get access to private uh, podcasts that I don't release to the public, then all you have to do is become a patron through my page on patreon.com slash the astrology podcast. And there's a bunch of different tiers, including early access, attend live recordings, uh, get access to the auspicious elections episode, or even get a producer credit at the end of one of these episodes of the show. So if you enjoy this content and you want to support the work we're doing here or want to help me to expand it so I can do more stuff or fly out people like Patrick, or eventually once Omnicron uh, goes away, people like Austin to do these episodes in person, then think about becoming a patron of the Astrology Podcast. All right, that's it for this forecast, and that's it for this look at the Astrology of February. Thanks, guys, for doing this. This is a lot of fun. It takes me back to the mid-2000s and hanging out with the two of you when we were much younger, little astrologers at Project Hindsight. Uh, and, and Patrick, it's awesome to have you on the show in this this capacity. This was great. Oh, thank you so much. It is, is a total honor. I, I'm so happy that uh, you <laughs> invited me to be on. I can't lie. I was very, very excited. Awesome. awesome. And you know, it didn't even occur to me, but Venus Retro, it's totally like friend from the past. Right. <laughs> like how many people have we had on that we've known for, we've both known for like 16 years? Yeah. I love that. That's perfect. Yeah, true. And Austin, you did send me those ris- those risque DMs beforehand as well. So there was that as well. Uh, well I don't know if you were supposed to mention that, Patrick. That's part of the, <laughs> yeah, the disclosure. Uh, oh, you mean all of the uh, the, the yeah, kidding, the, of course, the Firmicus <laughs> jokes, right? The Firmicus Maternus. Uh, he was a risky fellow, that fourth century astrologer. Well, he was he was a firm guy. <laughs> 
All right. We'll leave you with that thought as your Valentine's Day parting uh, episode thought for February. All right, guys. Uh, (laughs) That's all I got. I don't have a better ending than that. So thanks, everyone, for watching uh, this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Please be sure to drop a comment or like the video on YouTube if you like this episode. And we'll see you again next month for the Astrology of March. So good luck and take care. Bye, everyone. Bye. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Morgan McKinsey, and Kristen Otero. If you like the work that I'm doing here on the podcast and you would like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. And in exchange, you'll get access to bonus content such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the month ahead forecast each month, access to a private monthly auspicious elections report that we put out each month, access to exclusive episodes that are only available for patrons, or you can also get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. The main software we use here on the podcast to look at astrological charts is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we use a similar set of software by the same programming team called AstroGold for Mac OS, which is available from astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code AstroPodcast15 to get a 15% discount on that as well. If you would like to learn more about the approach to astrology that I outline on the podcast, then you should check out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, where I traced the origins of Western astrology and reconstructed the original system that was developed about 2,000 years ago. And in this book, I outline uh, basic concepts, but also take you into intermediate and advanced techniques for reading a birth chart, including some timing techniques. So you can find out more about the book at hellenisticastrology.com book. The book pairs very well with my online course on ancient astrology called the Hellenistic Astrology Course, which has over 100 hours of video lectures where I go into detail about teaching you how to read a birth chart and showing hundreds of example charts in order to really demonstrate how the techniques work in practice. So find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. Also, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Mountain Astrologer magazine, which is available at mountainastrologer.com, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, and the Astrogold Astrology app, which is available for both iPhone and Android at astrogold.io. There are also two major astrology conferences happening this year. The first is the Northwest Astrological Conference, happening May 26th through the 30th, 2022, near Seattle, Washington. Find out more information at norwac.net. And the second is the International Society for Astrological Research Conference, which is taking place August 25th through the 29th, 2022, in Westminster, Colorado. And you can find out more information about that at isar2022.org.